0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, January the 5th, six one zero nine three seven is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning, Good morning. Freehold. Good morning. Um, anybody interested in being Speaker of the House? <laughs> I like hear there's an election. It's up for grabs, apparently. And the dude that is trying to be Speaker just can't drum up the necessary votes to win uh, the election. I went back and looked. I mean, no time for football this morning. Well, there's no football to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. You got Georgia and TCU. Uh, We've done about all we can with that. The Hogs, excuse me, the Frogs and the Dogs will play (laughs) one another. Uh, We got NFL football, and uh, I guess the NFL is trying to figure out what to do with the um, the situation they find themselves in with the Cincinnati Buffalo game having been suspended. When do we play that game? Um, I don't have any idea. I mean, I heard talk yesterday about basically um, sharing the win and allowing Buffalo to receive some benefit for having the best record, the Bengals to receive some of the benefit from having the best record. But then if you do that in the AFC, do you do it in the NFC as well? You know, you kind of go down that slippery slope. Uh, They're in a conundrum is what they are. Um, Good news, it seems, and all this is speculation. It's not total speculation. Some of the family has released um, preliminary information that leads us to believe the condition of Demar Hamlin is improving, uh, from what I'm gathering and, and what I'm reading, and take it for what it's worth. It's yeah. media, so um, you know nobody knows for sure, but it seems that he is um, more stable, still in critical condition, but more stable. And um, and as a football fan, I go back to the moment I saw what I saw, and I don't know that I'll ever feel the same about football again. Really, I mean, I, it was it was a it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a very profound moment for me. Um, I played football, my boys played football, I love football, I, I've grown up following passionately the game of football, and as I said yesterday and the day before, I just never imagined that that I would wonder whether someone was going to die on the football field as a result of an injury. Now, now once again, Twitter says, uh, <laughs> here we go, you ready? Twitter says that he basically had a concussion to the heart, but did the vaccine was the vaccine contributor to that reality. I have no clue. I mean, I don't have any idea whether or not the vaccine contributed, whether or not he had this. Um, this It doesn't happen to many people under the age of 40, but it does happen occasionally, and I won't try to pronounce it. We had a, a, actually a physician we uh, spoke with yesterday that tried to explain it is a, a concussion to the heart. When the heart receives trauma, at exactly the wrong, the most inopportune moment, that is a potential reality. But there's some out there convinced that the vaccine had something to do with weakening the heart muscle, inflaming the heart muscle. As a result of that, he was more suspect to have this happen. Um, in deference to the family, respect to the family, we'll investigate it, that at some point in time. I would imagine if he gets better, if he's able to be evaluated He will um, be properly evaluated. Will we know the whole truth, you know, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? I don't know. I don't have any idea where we get uh, from there. There will be attempts, I would imagine, to steer the conversation uh, one way or another. I want to begin today's show. We got a lot of time to talk about Kevin McCarthy and the election. I actually went back yesterday and tried to figure out the last year that Congress properly appropriated or budgeted um, the amount of taxpayer dollars That we send to washington and it was 1997 (laughs) i mean that that was the last year now now you could argue that in 2006 we did something kind of sort of like a budget um in 2001 um i would have been in in 1997 or 98 98 there was a one-day cr bill clinton i think was the president in 98 Uh, yeah he would have been the president in 98. And Clinton um, told them to get off their duff and and, and do a budget. They didn't. Um, since 1997, we've averaged. Check this out, guys. We've averaged four and a half continuing resolutions per year. We've not done an appropriations bill as Congress is required by October one for the you know the next fiscal year since 1997. That's the last year. Now, now once again, th- th- there's some debate as to what. You know, well, they did do this or they did do that. Um, but 97 is the last year. And I've got the list here. You ready? The Agricultural, Rural Development, Food and Drug Administration, the Commerce, Justice, Science and Related Agencies, the Defense, the Energy and Water Development, the Financial Services and General Government, the Homeland Security, the Interior Environment Related Agencies, the Labor, Health and Human Services, Education Related Agencies, the Legislative Branch. The military construction, veterans affairs and related agencies, state foreign operations and related governments, the transportation, housing and urban development and related agencies. Those are the 12 appropriation subcommittees that are responsible for line iteming how we're going to spend taxpayer dollars once they get in the coffers of our federal government. We've not properly appropriated since 1997. I mean that that's.
1: That, and I'm if telling the rules you, say that's the way it has to be done, how do they get I mean, away they, they with they not change following the rules. the rules? They just change
0: the I rules. Guess their Congress. They make the rules. Anything that doesn't require an amendment to the Constitution, because you said yesterday, could one of the um, could one of the bargaining chips in whether McCarthy becomes Speaker or not be term limits? Term limits requires a, an amending of the Constitution. So you come. I mean, the Speaker doesn't have the authority to do that. I mean, I, yeah, you can you can begin down the road of advancing you know, an agenda of, that includes, you know, but, but the public has to decide whether or not. I mean, that would be a, a, a once again, not the public, but that would be a um, an amendment to the, of the Constitution. Constitution. I mean, that's, that's a much heavier lift. Um, I got to believe, guys, and I don't know this. I mean, I read a lot of the Wall Street Journal yesterday uh, from some folks that I trust. I mean, they're kind of sort of insiders, and they've led me to believe this is rule committee centered and, and appropriation. So, I mean, it, it, there's an element within the Freedom Caucus that believes it's our job to prioritize appropriating. We've got to do that the right way, and we've thrown caution to the wind. That's why we're thirty-one trillion dollars in debt. And there's another who believes, or there's another group that believes the rules committee are the main drivers. In other words, when can we amend the budget? Excuse me, when can we offer an amendment? When can we? When do we see the you uh, know the continuing the omnibus bill? I mean, to get a four-thousand-page bill the day before you're to vote on it. I mean, somebody in the Rules Committee said that's okay. I mean, the Rules Committee sets the basic rules for how Congress operates. I mean, it's a moving target. Democrats have a certain interpretation of rules. They make certain rules. Republicans do. Um, not I don't say just the opposite, but they have the ability to to create the rules of which the body and chamber abide by. So so from what I'm gathering and what I've read, Hill.com had a good article, and the Wall Street Journal had a couple of articles But, um, and these are folks that aren't trying to stir it up. I mean, they're trying to accurately, honestly report what's happening. It seems to me the 20 members have asked Kevin McCarthy for about three months, two and a half months to, 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 to concede in some of the matters relating to rules and appropriations. And, you know, McCarthy says he's done everything they've asked him to do. They say he has not. I'm not in the caucus room. I'm not in the yelling and screaming department. I don't know who's lying and who's telling the truth. But, but somebody is because McCarthy once again says that he has for the past two months worked hand in glove with the Freedom Caucus to, to, to understand exactly what their concessions are to gain their support. They say he has not publicly. I mean, you've heard this. You've heard this public statement on television, on the internet, on radio. McCarthy says he's done everything. They say he has not. Today's critical to me. I don't know. I don't know why, but I don't know why I feel that way. But today is a very critical moment. I actually, texted with a good friend, Robert Cahaley, last night from Trafalgar, and Robert was very surprised that after the first day, the McCarthy team was not ready to just just absolutely understand what it is these guys want, and ladies for that matter. And um, and he thinks there. I mean, he's got contacts in Washington, talks to a lot of these folks, and and he thinks there's still some ambiguity about what they want. Um, in other words, what, what are the concessions? M- McCarthy had to understand this, guys. If you put your name in the hopper, I mean, I was told at a very early, uh, very early in my political life, I was told never a good time to lose. I mean, take one for the team. He gave it his best, he gave it his all. He lost, but he got his name out there. He'll be a much more formidable candidate the next time he runs. No, I mean, there's never a good time to lose. He is a diminished speaker no matter what happens from here. Now, one of the concerns I have, and I think Ralph Norman said it yesterday when he said, Kevin wants to be Speaker really bad. That, that concerns me. But I mean, if he goes today and we have another two or three votes and they remain at loggerheads, they remain exactly where they are today, the number is 213. I mean, it's not 218. The number is 213. McCarthy has no chance to get to 218. Zero. Now I think there's a death in the chamber. Remember Pennsylvania elected a dead man? Mm-hmm. So the number's 217. I mean it's not 218, it's 217. McCarthy's at what? 202, 201, 202, 203. He's got to get to 213. The reason it's 213, it's members voting in the name of a, you know, of a candidate. In other words, present brings the number down. You can win, it, but why is it 213? Because King Jeffries has 212 in his pocket. I mean, every Democrat's voting for Hakeem Jeffries, and if McCarthy gets to 11, and there are that many people voting present that Hakeem Jeffries becomes the Speaker of the House. The Republicans won't let that happen. I mean, they they could at least do some math, I think. I, I hope. So they'll keep that number above, but McCarthy's number's not 218, but rather 213. I mean, he would much rather have the majority of the body. He'd rather have all of his membership, but he ain't going to get that. I mean, he's just not. I'm convinced that there are probably 8 or 10, ah, maybe 6 or 8, that under under no circumstance or, or condition are going to vote for McCarthy. There's some others from what I'm gathering that could be convinced, that could be convinced. So McCarthy has absolutely no chance to get to 218. He's got probably a 1 in 3 chance of getting to 213. And if they, I mean, he didn't get it done last night because at the 8 o'clock when they, when they reconvened at 8 and went back into session at 8, uh, McCarthy's comments were tonight will be tonight wouldn't be productive. So they've not gotten to 213 yet. But I think the one thing you got to remember today is forget the number 218 and start concentrating on the number 213. How do we get there? I mean, if you're McCarthy, if you're on his team, if you're a supporter, if you're somebody who believes this is a clown show and a you know a, a, a chaotic fiasco. Uh, you know, I heard all these uh, descriptives yesterday on media. um, and, and is it a clown show? Is it a, a, a chaotic affair? Um, what about not budgeting since 1997? <laughs> what about $32 trillion in federal debt? Uh, what about spending money we don't have? And, you know, what about not raising the debt? I mean, there, there's a lot of chaos in Washington that there's just some that people are more accustomed to and Congress likes a little more. And, and I'm, I'm beginning to become a fan of the twenty who are choosing to kind of dig in and hunker down. Really? I mean, they're, they're obstinate. There's no doubt about it. And they are putting some of the Republican brand at risk by appearing to be, why did you want the job if you don't want to do the job? I mean, I hear some of that. that, that that's. I mean, I, Sean Hannity, yeah, last night. I mean, he, chastising Lauren Bobbitt uh that's that's not yeah, no, no. T- d- different altogether. yeah well, we Bobert. know her name though right right if you're yeah. a dude you don't
1: forget her name <laughs> you're right correct? about that yeah, don't close yeah. your eyes yeah. around yeah. her not Lo- uh, lorena bobbitt yeah, no she's
0: no. she's a um she fancies herself as a surgeon, I'd yeah. say. Um <laughs> but she ain't. I'll promise you, she ain't. Yeah. So it's uh Bo-bear. Bobert. 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 Yeah, she's not from France either. It's uh, it's Lauren Bobert is what her name. Um in fact our good friend and uh and former confidant, um, Cato said that he ain't a Marjorie Taylor Green fan anymore. He's a Bobert fan right. uh, from, from now on. And, and Hannity and Bobert went at it last they night. They did on TV. go at it. And, I, and it's interesting when you look at talk radio, it seems to be uh, somewhat divided. Uh, Beck says, don't give in to McCarthy. Uh, Bongino says, don't give in to McCarthy. Hannity says, yes, McCarthy needs to be speaker. And Levin says, and actually a little bit surprising to me, Levin seems to be a little more sympathetic. To allowing McCarthy to be the speaker. Not not his favorite guy, and not the guy he would choose if he had his druthers, but uh, but under the current circumstances, Levine and Hannity seem to be in the camp. Uh, that's kind of unusual. And what do you say to, to Hannity's argument? And I think Newt
1: Gingrich has said some of the same thing. You know, he's got two hundred and two. I mean, that is such a it is of your members, it is so far in his direction, there's you can't get you're only at twenty. You can't get to Two eighteen or two thirteen or whatever. Well, I mean, what do you there, say that argument?
0: There's a reason it takes two eighteen to win. I mean, two o two doesn't win it. I mean, I, I get it, the argument. It's a legitimate. It's a conundrum. I mean, it really and truly is. I get the fact that Newt says and Sean says. You know, he has ninety percent of the membership. I mean, that's enough to convince the other ten percent to come along. You lost. I mean, you lost ninety percent to ten percent. Get on board and let's do the best we can under these certain circumstances. But but nobody has a right. No one person has a right to tell Congress how to behave. There are four hundred and thirty five members of the House of Representatives. all in their very unique ways, represent their unique districts by, by their unique personalities. That's just the way it is. When four hundred and thirty five people gather in a in at in a common place and they come from every different sorts of ways of living and walks of life and and educational attainments and, and, and business experiences, who are you to say that I must do what the majority does? I mean, I may be unique, and um, and, and I, I know this to be true. There are more than 20 that don't want McCarthy to be Speaker, but McCarthy's made a deal with a lot of these guys and ladies that they're comfortable with. So when you say McCarthy's got 90% of the body, 90% of the majority uh, you know, in support of him, yeah, he does, but he's made a lot of deals with those. That they probably aren't as philosophically conservative as some of these guys are and some of these ladies are ralph norman is a very philosophically conservative man he just is uh does that make ralph wrong i mean is it ralph's job at one of these critical moments in american history because this is now a critical moment in american history we've had a two-day contested election for speaker of the house for the first time in 100 years that's pretty consequential as far as i'm concerned but but who has the right to tell ralph norman that you don't have, um, you know, you, you, who, who do you represent, Ralph? I mean, is your job to go along and get along into Washington? Or is it to represent the people of the 5th Congressional District in South Carolina? I, I think there's a balancing act there. I do think you have an obligation to be a member of the majority team. But, but you know, that there's a lot of gray in there, guys. What makes me okay with McCarthy being speaker may not make you okay, with being uh, with McCarthy being Speaker, and I think the yin and yang is one of the beautiful parts of American politics. It's it's nasty, it's ugly, it's dysfunctional. It can be, you know, la- the media can label it a clown show, but in essence, I mean, it's a um, it's a representative democracy. Ralph Norman believes it's his job to represent the interests of the Fifth Congressional District that includes York County and Rock Hill and some of the suburbs of Charlotte. Um, they actually call it South Charlotte. Now, we, we, when I was in Columbia, we referred to the 5th Congressional District as the South Charlotte <laughs> District. Um, but, but I mean, you know, everybody has a right. Nobody has a monopoly on what the body should do. Everybody has a, a unique interest. They come from a unique place. They have unique characteristics and qualities about their belief in how to do their job. And they're entitled to that. So I don't put much stock in uh, what Gingrich says or what Hannity says and um and something's motivating Hannity other than, I mean, I've got no idea. It seems to be Trump may be in Hannity's ear. You know, and and, and remember the day Sean defended what Trump said, yeah. and then Trump apologized and said, I didn't mean to say what he said, and Hannity defended the apology. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, yeah, I, I hope we're never perceived uh, to be that much uh, in support of one candidate, blind loyalty to a candidate or not. Let's take a break. Callers are uh, callers are lining up. We'll get to there as soon as we are. Take our first break of this Thursday morning. Yeah, but if you uh, if we elected uh, Lorraine Bobbitt to Congress, she could cut some spending. <laughs> oh, I'll assure ouch. you of that. Let's really? go to the phone. <laughs>
1: How long did it take
0: you to come up with that one? <laughs> but she, She'd cut some spending. right?
1: JT in Florence. Good morning, JT. Uh,
2: why do you guys do that to me? <laughs> every, every time I have to follow something, I don't know. what. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, no, no, um, hey, so... Good to talk to you guys. Hope you've had a good holiday season, good Christmas, and Happy New Year. I wanted to say, as this has been going on, I don't know, Ken, if this makes me just a contrarian or whatever, but I started to have more sympathy for the people with the holdouts. Because as I heard that speech the other day, it did get me thinking, um, you can go back and watch The West Wing, which was a mid, late 90s, early 2000s political show, written all from the liberal perspective. But uh, the same problems that were tenants of that show are happening here. Uh, Social Security is still going bankrupt, national debt back then. Oh my goodness! I wish you would have heard the numbers they were talking about back then as as being problematic. <laughs> you know? And it's like the 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 government of the United States one trillion dollars in debt. Can you even imagine? And I was like, that's that's happening about every six months now. Um, and <laughs> uh, you name it, name it, and it's still going on. Our healthcare system is still broken. Our educational system still has serious issues that need to be addressed. And so, hey, if somebody wants to sit there like uh, I think it was Chip Roy and I heard his speech and if he if his point is we have kicked the can down the road long enough and we want somebody who's going to try to solve these problems and not just say they're going to solve them, but actually try to solve them, come up with plans and work with people. Why? How can you not? Um, appreciate that because you're right. The the job of each one of those people is to represent their district. It's not to get along with other Republicans. I guess that's part of it. I, you, know, you, you can argue that's more of a part of it than, you know, it, than you want it to be when you get up there. But their job is to represent the people that put them there, period, period. And I don't know about you guys. I don't know how much longer you can keep kicking it down the road. Um, so, I don't know. I'm, I'm eager to see what's going to happen because uh, it's it, it's definitely bucking the system of you know you set up who you want to replace you, and I wish the Senate had as much gumption. Truthfully, I don't know if there's as many leeway uh, on on their process, but um, the fact that Mitch McConnell is the longest serving majority leader in history is sad.
0: It's my two cents. Have thank, a great day. Thank you, JT. Appreciate that. I actually reached out yesterday uh after ralph norman came on the show because i've known ralph a while i mean ralph was actually a candidate for lieutenant governor when i ran and i got to know ralph fairly well uh when ralph got out of the race he made a contribution to my campaign when ralph announced he's running for congress i made a contribution to his campaign we have a similar worldview ralph's a little older than i am um been around politics a little longer than i have but ralph comes from the business sector he's a real estate developer his family's been, been been in commercial development um he's been blessed having been around the Rock Hill area with all that growth that happened uh, right before his very eyes, right in his backyard, so to speak. But Ralph and I've had multiple conversations about the the, the business mindset of government. And, and Ralph is deeply concerned about the debt. He's deeply concerned about the lack of budgeting. And I reached out yesterday after Ralph came on the show to his chief of staff, who I told you is a former employee of mine as lieutenant governor. And I said, um, I don't think Mark would mind me sharing this. Mark, is Ralph Is Ralph's primary beef the budgeting? And he said 100%. That was his response to me, 100%. Ralph can get nobody in Washington in leadership to listen to his complaint about why we've not properly appropriated since 1997. Why have we blessed, voted for? I mean, if we're fiscally conservative, why have 4.5 continuing resolutions per year been blessed by both Republicans and Democrats since 1997. I mean, you know, the driver of the debt when you look at the federal debt, the the biggest contributor to the debt outside of COVID. I mean, you know, the world changed with COVID. I mean, it was like socialism embraced, really and truly. I mean, that's when we decided, I mean, we'll, we'll never forget what we've done to this country as a result of, of COVID and, and what Fauci required us to do. and The NIH said we need to do, and CDC and the World Health Organization. I mean, we lost our ever-loving minds and what we normalized during COVID. But prior to COVID, you go back at the trajectory of debt, and there's one moment in time that, that it really got I mean, it got highly inflated, and that is the Bush tax cuts and the Medicare prescription benefits. Simultaneously done one with another. Within sixteen months of one another, we had the Bush tax cuts, well, I'm for tax cuts. I mean starve the beast. But at the same time, we added this Medicare prescription benefit that exacerbated the problem of federal debt, you can't blame that on Democrats. I mean, that's a Republican president. And if you give Democrats a chance to offer another government benefit, guess what? They'll take <laughs> up on it. I mean, they, there's no doubt about it. So, so when, when when Ralph appears to be chaotic and, and he's a part of a clown show and he's stubborn and he won't listen and, you know, it, it's time to get in line and do what the party's supposed, no. I mean, if you're principled and you believe, and I know Mark well enough to, he, he's, he's, a, he's an honest guy. And when I reached out to Mark Pyle and I said, Mark, is, is Ralph's primary complaint budgeting 100%? And he sent back another word or another text, $31.5 trillion in federal debt. Well, well, I said it yesterday and I'll say it again. If you offer a member of Congress a chance to not vote on a budget and not be forced to say no, they'll take you up on that every single chance they get. And that's why we're $31 trillion in debt. No member of Congress has been required to sit on one of these 12 appropriation subcommittees and say yay or nay in answer to the American public when they say, well, how are we spending this much money? Some member of Congress needs to say we're spending more than we have. Somebody on the defense subcommittee, somebody on the the energy and water development, somebody on the financial services and general government, the legislative branch, the labor, health, and human services, the education subcommittee. I mean, if you don't have to sit on that committee and appropriate because you can deficit spend, you get the best of both worlds. You get to tell everybody yes to every request they make, and you don't have to answer publicly by voting on a budget. And that's wrong, guys. That's dangerous. And and, and once again, are some of these candidates, are some of these Congress members looking for attention? Of course they are. I mean, they're politicians. They like the bright lights. I mean, Lauren uh, Bobert, Of course she wants to be on The Hannity Show. I mean, she's an attention seeker. But some aren't. Some are genuinely principled and believe in the fundamentals of the way we're supposed to govern ourselves. And we're not abiding by that. And I'll tell you this. If I'm in Congress and I look at the track record of how we've budgeted and and the amount of federal debt we've incurred as a result of not budgeting, not forcing politicians to say no, allowing politicians to be Santa Claus and not be held accountable, And I went to McCarthy and said, look, I'll vote for you as speaker, but but I I want us to go back to budgeting. I want these 12 appropriation subcommittees to do their job. How many Americans don't know or how many Americans do know that they're not doing their job? I mean, why is not the media telling us that one of the primary complaints of the 20 members who refused to vote for McCarthy are because we aren't budgeting as Congress is required to budget? What would the American people think? If they realize and were told honestly that, that some of this resistance is because Washington is not doing what Washington is supposed to do. But they're, on, they're in on the scam. I mean, the media likes big government. The media likes spending money we don't have. It doesn't bother them any at all. Well, I'm proud to say and have sympathy toward the few members of Congress who are willing to say no, not anymore. Now, I'm not sympathetic to ones looking for attention and they want to be the next talk show host. I have no sympathy for them because that's not their job. They're not. Their job is to not become a celebrity, to not make themselves famous. And damn it, some are. And we should call them what they are. But Chip Roy's not in this for fame or fortune. I'll assure you that. Roy is a very serious man, and he sees deficiencies in how we're running our government, and he sees an opportunity to hold somebody's feet to the fire and address it. And for those who say, well, th- th- these right-wingers, these clowns, these um, these chaotic Republicans, maybe but let's get back to serious budgeting of taxpayer dollars. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale.
3: Hey guys, and I suppose all that's important and all. My problem isn't with any individual, it's with the party. I mean, go back to Mitch McConnell, not funding some of these uh, candidates. You don't see the Democrats doing this stuff. I'm sure they're doing it behind closed doors, but when they come out in public, they're in lockstep, they've got a unified message, and the the, the Republicans are going to keep getting kicked in the teeth until they can come up with some sort of unity. To me, this is just another example of Republicans not being my party anymore. I'm sorry, but... Like I said, my problem isn't with any individual, but my, my question is, that why is why is this one guy asking, you know, it being important about the budget? Why isn't all the Republicans want one of their top things, uh, you know, the budget? Every single one of them talked about it when they were trying to get elected, and I said, this isn't my party anymore. I don't know what happened, but uh, it's not the party that... I joined. You guys have a good
0: day. Thank you, Dale. But I mean, as Don Henley said, the heart of the matter, I mean, that that is the heart of the matter. It shouldn't surprise anybody that liberals want to spend a bunch of money we don't have. It shouldn't surprise anybody that liberals don't, um, you know, go through the subcommittee process and appropriate because somebody's got to say no at some point in time. Or either look at the American public in the eye and say, hey, we're doing all these things. But remember now, we're spending a trillion dollars this year that we don't have. And we've already spent 31 trillion that we don't have. You know how much a trillion is? That's Dave Baker. It's a thousand billion. That's right. You know how much a billion is? A thousand million. In other words, guys, here we go. You ready? Let's get real technical. It's an ass of money. <laughs> I mean, it's a tremendous you amount of money. It, really, you can't comprehend you how much a trillion is. But we're thirty-one and a half trillion dollars in the hole because we've not been serious about how we spend taxpayer dollars. And twenty Republicans are all of a sudden. Well, I mean, let's say a dozen of the twenty. Hater are attention seekers. I mean, they want to be famous. They want to be, They want to have their own television show or, or radio show. But, but there's a seriousness about Ralph Norman and Chip Roy. They want us to budget. Why does McCarthy not want to budget? I can tell you why. Because if we budget, somebody at defense gets told no. Somebody in green energy gets told no. Somebody in, um, in state foreign operations and related programs get told no. Somebody at education gets told no. Somebody at transportation gets told no. Nobody in Washington likes to say no to anybody who wants anything. We put it on the tab. It's easy, guys. It, it's it's Dale says I don't understand it, but, but stick with me for a second. Why would you take the hard road when the easy road is available? Why would you take the road less traveled when the road more traveled or more easily traveled, is ready, willing, and able. I mean, here we go. There's a fork in the road. Here's the road that says, hey, we need to reestablish these 12 appropriation subcommittees and get serious about our budgeting. And the other says, hey, no, we don't. We need to say yes to everybody and spend a trillion dollars a year we don't have. I mean, what road are you taking? And finally, enough Republicans see an opportunity to leverage some of that influence. And and I, I don't have any idea what McCarthy has said When the Ralph Normans of the world or the Chip Roy's of the world say, Kevin, it's nothing personal with you. Please understand. Well, I mean, we're on the same team. But but unless you agree to reestablish these appropriation subcommittees and let's budget for the first time since 1997, you're not my guy. That's my bargaining chip. I'm not in leadership. I don't chair a committee. I'm a single member of Congress. But this matters enough to me to not give my vote away to you Unless you make that concession, Dale's right. Why aren't there an inversion? Why aren't there 20 Republicans who are okay with the way we're budgeting or not budgeting, and, and 202 who say we need to get serious about budgeting? That's what we voted for, right? I mean, aren't we the conservative party? Aren't we the limited? No, we aren't. Of course, we are supposed to be. No, but the voters are, but the office holders are not. The intoxicating power of Washington reveals itself in our Republican leadership. Democrat leadership, I mean, it's a no-brainer. Give Nancy Pelosi a chance to spend money she doesn't have on programs we don't need. She is a philosophical liberal. Yes, I will do that every day. The Republican leadership are put in office by what? People who say, I want limited government. I want lower taxes. I want a proper budgeting process. But the intoxicating nature of Washington, when Raytheon holds the fundraiser and Raytheon says, we, we need this money. Not a single Republican in Washington in the leadership says we don't have that money. They bless the budget, they bless the continuing resolution, they bless the omnibus bill, and they borrow money. That's against the will of the Republican voter. But the Republican office holder doesn't go to Washington and do the work of the Republican voter. Take a break. Back in a minute.
1: Appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial member FINRA SIPC. This morning's edition of the Armstrong Minutes is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group, dedicated to growing and protecting your wealth.
0: Welcome back to Wake Up Carolina Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong. Good morning, Reggie. How are you? Good morning and happy new year there. Same Reggie, different year. Um, (laughs) Good deal, good deal. So the USC Gamecocks lost. In the USC Trojans uh, oh, lost as well. Don't give me so. So you had a bad, uh, bad a bad, I mean, put- good year,
4: bad ending. Good deal. I, although, good deal. although I will say this, the Gamecocks still. I mean, they they don't have anything. They don't have much to be ashamed of. Trojans, uh, they got a little more work <laughs> to work good, on. Good deal. Good deal.
0: Many more of our fans <laughs> care about our listeners care about the Gamecocks oh, absolutely, than they do. And uh, they it do. Was a,
4: it was a good year, Shane. I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be good. I was, nope. I was glad Lenore. Uh, sellers decided to go to the Gamecocks.
0: So, okay. so if you were an investor in Gamecock football, you would be long. I, I, mean, you, you I think would, the I would. I think. I think. I
4: think they're on a uh, on the upswing, and they ended despite the loss. I think they ended strong.
0: Okay. Good deal what didn't end strong <laughs> was the the markets in 2022 mm. oh yeah uh, this is a weird way to ask the question but i'm gonna ask you this anyway mm-hmm. so what do we make of 2022 mm-hmm. as we head into 2023 are there historical analysis sure is there a reggie re- kind of a reggie personal perspective in, a, in other words we flip the calendar yep. but we're still you know doing our thing yeah. what what happened in 22 mm-hmm. that leads you to believe something else is going to happen in 2023. Okay,
4: great question. So let's just start off with some broad numbers. Now, these, you know, are just, I'm rounding here, guys, you can look up the actual data yourself or give me a call. But it's, so the S&P 500 basically fell, you know, at its worst, it was down almost 25% last year, but it ended the year around 19% down. Okay, it depends whether you count dividends or not. If you don't count dividends, it's just a little under 19%. If you count dividends, it's almost 20%. So about 19% down. It's still in bear market territory. The peak was actually one year ago Tuesday. On the on the 2nd of January in 2022 was the peak of this market, as measured by the S&P. So 20%, eh, that's 1920. Uh, but the NASDAQ, I mean, it got smacked over 30%. At one point this year uh, in 2022, it was down 35 It still ended around 30-some because, I mean, you had some stocks, and this is neither a recommendation for or against, but you had some big stocks like Facebook Meta that took huge hits. Apple started really weakening at the end of the year. Uh, Tesla was down 69% last year. I mean, again, nothing pro or con those those stocks. I'm just saying those are the raw numbers, and so the tech sector really got walloped, the growth sector. Bonds had their worst year ever. In ninety-seven years, wow! On a real return basis, they lost about thirteen percent, which is horrible. But you know, in nineteen eighty-one, I think it was, it might have been seventy-nine. They lost about twelve percent in a twelve-month time frame. They made it up in four months. Okay, so bonds are different than stocks, uh, but if you take into account inflation. It was the worst bond performance in 20 years. Keep in mind, if you lost 13% and inflation averaged last year 6.6, ballpark, um, you're down 20. Same thing with stocks. You're down 20, but you add inflation, you're really down about 27. Okay, So last year, ugly, glad to put it behind us. What does that mean for 23? Well, historically, if we look at the long-run averages, bad years are usually followed by good years. You don't have too many back-to-back years. Even the horrible 08, 07 was a slightly positive year. 09 was a very nicely positive year. It was really calendar year-wise, only 08 was ugly. Um, the last, you've, you've got to go back to 2000 where you had 2000 was slightly negative, 2001 was a little bit more than 2002 a lot. So what causes that? And again, I, I don't have the time to go into that, but let's put it this way. If if the market begins at a slightly expensive level and you get a bad year, you pretty much the market kind of dusts itself off and things get back to normal. And and that should be the default for most people after a down year. It, you know, I could, it, it'll, it'll do that. But occasionally when the market is, starts at a point where it's extremely expensive, um, it gets a lot worse. Now, the economy might be headed to recession this year there's a lot of indicators that says it is. On the other hand, the fourth quarter might've been pretty strong. You know, we don't know yet, right? Um, But if we look, you know, the market was down after one year, about 19%. Most people would say we're gonna have a positive year. However, in 73, 74, after one year of declines, the market was down about 18%. In 2000 to 2002, after the first year of decline, the market was down about 19 percent 2007 2009 the market was down almost 20 percent after one year and each of those went on to lose about half in other words 17 74, you lost 44 percent eventually 2000 you lost 48 and 0809 you lost 57 so there are times where you know we're only in round three round five we got we got we got we got a 12 round match okay and we got more to go I'm, I'm not saying that's, I don't know. I'm just saying investors need to be aware that the market is not cheap here. It is certainly more reasonable than a year ago. So take a look at what you own, get a second opinion, and just just be wary. If if we don't have a recession, I think the market stabilizes here and has an okay year. If we have a recession, I think that's not priced in yet. Awesome.
0: that sound okay? Yeah, it sure does. And having said that, Reggie, I got to believe the first of the year is a good Time. I mean, we have New Year's resolutions. Mm, sure. Parking a lot of the gyms full. That aggravates me to no <laughs> end. But 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 in in all honesty, it's a good time to reevaluate mm-hmm. and 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 I don't know re-strategize if yep. that's a word uh, where to go from yep. here. If if someone wants to start that conversation with Armstrong, well, how do they do that?
4: Sure. Uh, one, you can call us 843-292-9997. Secondly, you can look us up on on our website to learn a little bit more about us first. Uh, armstrongwealth.com, and you can either email us or call us once you go to our website.
1: Okay. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it, Ken. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at 1807 West Devon Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC.
0: 843 One of the interesting comments this morning has been uh, amongst our, our listeners and our callers who are frustrated with the Republican party began with JT, I think jam and Barry and Dale and all expressed some of that concern. Um, There's the disconnect and and you've got this, um, let's say you've got this, this, this quadrant scale and you've got a, a, an upper right corner, a upper left corner, a lower left corner and a lower right corner. And in the upper right corner, you've got the conservative voter. And you look at the political representation of the conservative voter, and it's very limited. I mean, there, there aren't a lot of conservative politicians in America today. Lindsey Graham will say he's a conservative, but he voted for a $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. I mean, you know, and, and, I, and I, once again, guys, I've, I've defended Lindsey a lot on this show. I mean, the majority of our listeners don't care much for Senator Graham, and I've defended him at certain times and put myself at risk. A little bit, some of my conservative bona fides and, and virtues at risk when I defend Lindsay at times. But I think having been in elected office before, I understand some of the circumstances or situations you get yourself into. There, there's times you operate in the minority, there's times you operate in the majority. I understand why Lindsay did it, same reason Tom Cotton did it. I mean, I heard a conversation yesterday about Senator Cotton, how disappointed they were that Senator Cotton went along with a $1.7 trillion mm. omnibus bill, but they're hawks. I mean, they saw a chance to get to get defense spending. And any time you give Cotton and Graham a chance to increase the defense budget, I mean, ideologically, they believe that. I mean, that's a fundamental underpinning of Lindsey and and Senator Cotton and, and why they're in Washington. They believe that America has to be the world police. They're willing to invest American dollars into our military in the name of. Now, to me, it's American imperialism. There's, a, there's a, a disagreement we have within the Republican Party. That's a very warranted disagreement. How much should we spend on, uh, spend on defense? Lindsey and Cotton have one opinion. I have another. A lot of our listeners have varying opinions as to how interventionist or not, how globalist or not. Is it our job to export democracy? Well, that's pretty damn expensive. I mean, it really and truly is. But when you look at the omnibus bill, and here's a good example of, of of a politician trying to balance what he thinks is the is the right thing to do. There is no amount of money. I mean I don't care how hawkish I may or may not be. If I'm a Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham hawk, there's no way I'm voting for an increase in military spending or defense spending cloaked in a $1.7 trillion omnibus bill with with Democrat goodies all throughout. There's just no way I'd do that. Now, now once again, Cotton and Lindsay chose to. Because they're that committed to increasing defense spending. But but as a conservative Republican, kind of a nationalist American first Republican, there's no way I would do that. We can debate whether we spend enough on defense or not. I think we spend too much. I mean, I'm one of the few Republicans who will say loudly and proudly that I think we've invested too much of our taxpayer dollars in the name of the military industrial complex. I mean, there's one thing to say, investing in defense, investing in national security, there's another thing to say, we're, we're, we're bloating, we've got a bloated military and defense budget because of the, uh, the Raytheons of the world, the Honeywells of the world, the, the McDonnell Douglases of the world. But I think if you're a conservative Republican, if philosophically you are for limited government, you can't get there. You can't get to an increase in defense spending via a $1.7 trillion omnibus bill that is loaded. And I could read it. I mean, there's a laundry list of Democrats. It'd take you a while to read it. It's it's bizarre. I mean, it's crazy. Green energy and community programs and, you know, um, in the name of humanity, let's invest in these programs um, in some of these crime-ridden cities. Uh, It's just bizarre to me that Graham and Cotton thought that was the conservative quote-unquote thing to do. But but once again, they believe that the swap-off was worth it. If we can make a bigger investment in our military and defense, I'm willing to go along with some of these you know, craziness, some of the craziness of the Democrat Party. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hello, Joe.
5: Yeah, good morning, guys. The problem with defense spending is every bill that they can't get passed during the year, they add into the defense budget at the end of the year and roll it into the omnibus bill. And then write out everything they don't want to, you know, the, the increase in the defense was $45 billion for Ukraine. That's the only way they could get that passed. It had to pass. I, I want to start out with, I'll do you like, like uh, Jeff does you. Can we agree that Democrats have no morals, no principles,
0: and hate America? Can you agree to that? I, I'm not a Democrat. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what motivates Democrats to believe what they believe. I honestly don't, Joe. I mean, so, some but of their, some of this.
5: Married. But when you get married and you love a woman, do you want to transform her to what? They, want to trans- they have two playbooks, the Communist Manifesto and Rules for Radical. Cloward and Pibben said, let's overload the system and make it collapse. And that's what they're doing. When Lindsey Graham voted for an omnibus bill, he voted to not put any money toward border security, and he's always complaining about the border. But, but Joe, let me stop you there for a second. Let let, let,
0: let me stop you there for a second. You say that's what the Democrats believe in. So why do the Republicans go along? I mean, when you look at the spending and some of the debt incurred and you go back, I mean, we've not done a a proper budget. By that, I mean a 12-appropriation subcommittee budget since 1997. But but in that, but the, the biggest increase in spending pre-COVID, I mean, COVID's a different animal, but pre-COVID, it was the Bush tax cuts combined with the Medicare prescription benefit. I mean, that's when the exactly. debt really took off. That's not a Democrat administration. That's a Republican administration. And they they lost their way, and that's why the American people got
5: so fed up that they gave the Democrats the whole thing in 2006. And whenever they, they got so ridiculous in 2010 and jammed through the the uh, Obama Care Act, they, they threw them all out and, and put back in conservative Republicans that the Republican Party couldn't stand. Boehner hated that 63-seat majority that he got. I mean, they couldn't stand it. You know, we're sending people, they're doing right now what I want to do. In fact, I would rather them say, okay, I'm not electing the speaker until you agree to a 10% cut on all 12, uh, budget bills. We have to do that in our personal lives when our spending gets, you know, you can't spend more than you got. I mean, there, there are truths. This is an agreement between the american people we are a a country in an experiment in the rule of law that's what grounds us that's what binds us together you know there's only a million cops in in the united states there's 330 million people we voluntarily agree with each other not to do things to harm each other we we follow the law we pay our taxes And and we send people up there to represent us, and they end up hating our guts. I mean, the Democrats, like, it's so frustrating. You were talking to the guys from the state the other week, and you kept saying why they're so good. They're so good because they have principles that don't change. Truth doesn't change. Water is wet. Fire will burn you. That's the truth, and that never changes. Now, when the, the Democrats back in the 90s, they were all for border security. They were all for crime enforcement. Three strikes, you're out. They were all for defense of marriage. But all of a sudden, their finger goes in the air. They check which way the wind's blowing, and they change their principles. Republican conservatives do not change their principles that's why when they fight and everybody says oh we're going to shut down the government big deal shut it down because if they don't fight for their principles now we're done you know i'm so frustrated with all sean hannity i just turned him off (laughs)
0: Well, don't turn me off, Joe.
5: Thank
1: you. We got to hear the frustration in your voice. And a
0: lot of people are frustrated about this, but I'm telling you, I am sympathetic to the 20 because it's government in action. There's a disagreement within a political party. They're hashing out some of this disagreement in the public square. I've got no problem at all with that. Take a break. Finally, back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. So, so you were talking about the rules committee.
1: It sounds like you think that is a big deal. That's a big Congress, deal. I mean, if that's where the, the
0: debate is, and I know I don't have any idea. I'm not in the caucus. I mean, I, we had Ralph Norman on yesterday. I talked to Russell Fry a little bit texting. Uh, not specifically, but Russell's not a congressman yet because we don't have a speaker. He hadn't been sworn in uh, to Congress. But yes, I mean, the, the, you know, as as a former lieutenant governor who presided over the Senate, the, the Senate has almost an unlimited debate and discussion on a bill. The House doesn't. I mean, w- when a bill leaves a committee, it doesn't go straight to the House floor. Um, the House has a traffic cop and that traffic cop I call the Rules Committee. So um, I'm not in the House. I'm not a member of Congress. But 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 from what I've understood, and I'm reading tea leaves here, a lot of the disgruntled mud some of the 20. Now some want attention. There is no doubt about this, Reb. Some of these um Republican Congressmen and women want a radio show or a television show, or they want to be a senior political reporter or analyst from from Fox News. But but no, I mean if we're having a serious discussion about changes that need to be made, and I'm a member of Congress. My focus is on the 12 appropriation subcommittees and our lack of proper budgeting and whether or not we can make changes to the rule committee that what can be said and done to a bill is strictly limited. The limits are performed by the rules committee. And, and I think adjustments or, or, or alterations to the rules committee is a reasonable. Now, I don't know if some of these guys have, and ladies have made that request of, of McCarthy, and I have no idea what his response is, but as I read the tea leaves, Some of the serious debate, I hope, is about the Rules Committee and the Appropriations Subcommittee process. Somebody who may know more than I do and probably does know more than I do is our great television senior national editor, White House correspondent John Decker. John, good morning. How are you?
6: Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well. You know, I've been in the House chamber for every one of these votes that has taken place thus far for House Speaker. It is fascinating to be in the chamber to see this whole process play itself out to see all the conversations that happen between votes as well. And here we are at noon today, the house will reconvene for the seventh ballot to determine who the next speaker of the house will be.
0: John, any idea which way the winds are blowing?
6: I don't know. And I will tell you this, this seventh vote is really critical for Kevin McCarthy. If he is not able in the seventh ballot to pull away any of those 21 members significantly, not three, not four, but 10, 12. If he's not able to do that, he's got to drop out of the race. He'll never get to 218 votes that are necessary to be the House Speaker. And if he drops out, then I think you'll see Republicans coalesce around the number two House Republican, Steve Scalise. I can tell you yesterday, Matt Gates and Congressman Perry from Pennsylvania, they each had a conversation with Steve Scalise. And it wasn't about, you know, where are you going for dinner? It was about the idea of these 21 House members coalescing around him when and if McCarthy drops out of the race.
0: John, how privileged have you been to some of the internal conversations? You're not a member of the caucus. I'm obviously not a member of the caucus, but you're up close and personal. I mean, what do we believe? As I said earlier, and I think you'll agree with this, some members of Congress are attention seekers. I mean, they love the attention, that they, they want to be on the news, they, they want their own television, but there's probably a few of these folks who are serious about wanting some concessions. What can you tell us about some of the debates they've had internally, So some of the concessions that these holdouts want and McCarthy has been willing or not been willing to give?
6: Well, I think that it's also important to look not just at the 21, but also look back to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he did some things that... You know, you were a former lieutenant governor. Would you ever move in to the governor's mansion before you have the votes? Well, that's what Kevin McCarthy did. He moved his stuff into the speaker's office before he was even speaker-designate. I think that is bad form, number one, and it's counting your chickens before they're hatched, number two, and it really looked bad uh, as it relates to these 21 uh, Republican conservative members uh, who, you know, have felt, look, Don't forget about us. We are an important part of the Republican conference. So that's an important aspect to keep in mind. What are they talking about? You, just before you brought me on, was talking about the Rules Committee getting a spot on the Rules Committee. It's very powerful, perhaps the most powerful committee in the House of Representatives. There's that. And then there's also the talk about the leadership pack that Kevin McCarthy has and a promise that that leadership pack will not get involved in primary races whatsoever that was also an important concession but i have to tell you this uh speaker designate this speaker wannabe kevin mccarthy uh has conceded so much over the past three weeks i don't know what more he can concede and he looks awfully weak even
0: if he becomes the house speaker john it seems that a lot of the mccarthy strategy didn't adjust itself in other words in in early excuse me in late October. The Republicans felt like they were going to have a 20, 25 seat margin and McCarthy yes. could 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 storm, could endure some holdouts that that yes. that margin didn't play out the way it was anticipated or expected. All of a sudden, you've got, you know, fewer uh, you could you can afford fewer holdouts. And it looks to me like they didn't adjust the strategy accordingly.
6: I agree 100 percent with you, Ken. That is correct. Uh, you know, I think that immediately after the midterm elections, he to have started that outreach to people like Matt Gates and to people like Andy Biggs, knowing full well that he wants to be wants it to be a unified Republican conference for the next Congress. And he didn't do that. He didn't adjust uh, in any particular way whatsoever.
0: You said you felt today's round number seven was critical. Why is yeah. that? I mean, you're, you're there. You're, you're you're you've boots on the ground. You're up close and personal. There's a you're, you're an old hand at this. I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way, I mean, in the, in the no. most complimentary way imaginable. But, but why yeah. do you sense this first round of voting today is critical?
6: Well, there's frustration. There's frustration among the 200 or so House Republicans who've stuck by Kevin McCarthy, who've been loyal to Kevin McCarthy and have, you know, given him a long leash, you know, uh, to, to stick right by him for six ballots in which he's been defeated every time. And there comes a point where, uh, you know, you have to realize you can't get blood from a stone. And at that point, despite the fact that uh, this has been the hope and wish and goal of Kevin McCarthy for the past 10 years to be the House Speaker, it may not happen. And for those uh, 200 or so House Republicans, it's disappointing to them, too. But you need to get on with the business of the people, the business of the American people who sent them to Washington, D.C., And that's when I think if Kevin McCarthy fails to make any significant progress in the seventh uh, ballot that is coming up around noon Eastern time today, that's when conversations really get uh, started in earnest uh, in regards to Kevin McCarthy taking himself out uh, in terms of consideration to be the next House Speaker.
0: John, you've done such a good job of updating and engaging um, what it's like to be up close and and personal to to that situation. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, That is John Decker. Uh, Thank you, John. Appreciate that. That is John Decker, great television, senior national editor, White House correspondent. Um, I can't think of a better day to have John on the air. You can hear the enthusiasm in his voice. I mean, it's a it's a job in the middle of it. But it's a um, it's a labor of love right now when you're watching something historic. And uh, somebody texted me a second ago, there's no way you're right about the rules committee being the most important committee. Well, I mean, John just said that. I mean, I would argue that in the House, because in the Senate, you've got filibusters, you've got unlimited debates, you've got unlimited discussion on a bill. Um, When a a bill is reported, stick with me for a second, you've got two chambers. Uh, When a bill is reported out of committee, it doesn't go to the floor. There, there's a there's a um there's a vetting process called the rules committee and they decide um what sort of limitations are placed on the bill. Remember, Chip Roy said we've not been able to amend a bill since 2016. That's a stacked rules committee. I mean, that's the rules committee that doesn't want much debate. They would rather not have the, the the budget debated on the floor. They'd rather not have amendments proposed debated on the floor. The rules committee is a is an absolutely powerful committee, and the Speaker has so much influence. One well, I mean, of he appoints members on the Rules Committee. I mean, that that's his job. I mean, he puts, you know, uh, the minority has some, but the majority has more than the minority, obviously, so they control the Rules Committee. And, uh, and once again, I'm speculating. I mean, I'm reading tea leaves. Uh, I've got somewhat of a political instinct about me, and it tells me that, you know, uh, the majority of serious discussion has been around the Rules Committee, and who gets appointed to the Rules Committee. And I'll tell you, somebody asked me yesterday, so Jim Jordan doesn't want to be Speaker? Ah, uh, Jordan Jordan wants to be Chair of the Judiciary. But don't you think for a second that if the stars align, Jim Jordan would pass on being Speaker of the House? I mean, Jordan's doing what Jordan's supposed to do. He and McCarthy probably made a deal. He probably said, hey, Kevin, I don't have any interest in being Speaker. I could make life miserable for you if I wanted to but I probably couldn't get the votes to be speaker, but I'll cut a deal with you. I mean, I'll be your Freedom Caucus representative if you will make sure I am chair of the Judiciary Committee, because I really want to investigate the origin of COVID. I really want to investigate, um, you know, the Biden crime family. I really want to investigate whether, you know, Twitter and the FBI conspired to impact the outcome of an like, election.
1: I would like Jim Jordan to be speaker just to see what it would do to the Democrats. I would, would
0: much be- rather Jim Jordan being the cross-examiner. I mean, when you when you look at, I mean, it's almost like I want my running back to play quarterback, my quarterback to play wide that receiver. would make them so mad. Well, I mean, Jordan's just more effective as a cross-examiner. Yeah, I mean, he's just, that that's his forte. That's his strong suit. That's where he's at his best. And if Jordan is the speaker, he's kind of a, he's a director of the orchestra, so to speak, a conductor of the orchestra. I think Jordan needs to be shirt sleeve rolled up, sitting at the center of that um, judiciary committee, making sure James, what's his name, James Baker from the FBI tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, they'll help you, God. Now, the oversight committee would probably be the committee that goes after covid I mean, I would imagine there'll be some argument about does that go to oversight or does that go to judiciary? Judiciary will, I mean, they, they will absolutely explore whether or not the Biden family have um, peddled influence and gotten, you know, wealthy peddling governmental influence. I mean, that, that'll be a judiciary, I'm sure of that. But there'll be some debate uh, about whether or not the COVID origin uh, investigation falls under the purview of oversight or judiciary. Um, but that's probably the deal that Jordan and, and McCarthy made. And, um, and who would you want as a Republican? I mean, I think we can all agree. We might disagree on who the speaker needs to be, but I think the majority of us agree Jim Jordan needs to be chairman of the oversight because he's the best cross-examiner in Washington, period. I mean, he is a brilliant and, and very tactical and very bulldogish cross-examiner. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, uh, good
7: morning. Uh, this is off to a great start uh yeah I, uh jordan absolutely he's the featured soloist when it comes to cross examination there's no doubt about that and it it's uh it would be sad to uh waste him on the speaker speakership but uh i think uh mccarthy's problem is one of the things i think some of the people don't like about him is he he's failed to adapt to the situation that as uh battlefield changed he couldn't adapt to it when uh, we only we there no red wave materialized and that and and that's a shortcoming i would like to have a speaker that had a little more uh flexibility or adaptability and and uh just a a more Savvy man, I'm not saying that McCarthy's not very savvy, and he sure knows how to raise money. There's no doubt about that. But uh, I, uh, he should give up the ghost. And uh, but I, I don't mind this at all. If this went on for the rest of the month, I don't think it'd be a bad thing. In in that uh, we would uh, hash out some of these. Uh, problems that need to be addressed on the rules committee. And I'm arguably, I think the rules committee, the finance committee, probably uh, it, it's, it's pretty much a draw, which is more important in running the uh, House of Representatives. I've never been in the House, but I have observed it for years. And uh, we got uh, there's a, some tough calls there to be made, but these people that are these people, they they want to be mavericks. Some of them, I think you there there are attention seekers, but um, I think most of them, most of the, these guys are sincere. They want the way the House does business changed, and for the congressman to start working and uh, quit turning over the entire budget to their
0: uh, staff every year. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. And and what McCarthy is arguing, I'm I'm speculating. I mean, please understand, but this is my opinion. I don't know any more than you do. I probably read more about it than you have because it's my job. You shouldn't read as much about this. If you do, you need to get a new life uh, because it bores you to death on Mm -hmm. some of these articles. But Politico and the Hill, the Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, and I mean, everybody has a perspective and a take on this. But but as someone who Thinks he has somewhat of an understanding as how you know the um, the legislative branches in in our federal government operate. Um, the rules committees a big deal, and 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 once again, when Chip Roy, we may play that again. Let's find that four minute segment. Um, let's do this uh, free Let's take a break. We're up against a break. Let's take our break. Rev will try to um, retrieve. I think we've archived it. That four minute dissertation uh, from Chip Roy, and I think he articulates not the attention seeker. Not the person who just wrote a book wants you to buy it. Not the person who wants to be, you know, chief political analyst at Fox News or Newsmax, but rather serious people about an issue that they find very important to better govern our country, and that is the budgeting process and what members of the majority, once Republicans become the majority, what members sit on the rules committee, who are they beholden to? See, that's probably the debate. If McCarthy gets to put his guys or ladies on the Rules Committee, they're beholden to him. If McCarthy has to put two guys or ladies on the Rules Committee at, at the recommendation of the Freedom Caucus, then they don't owe him much of anything. He made a deal with them. They're on there not because of him being Speaker, but rather them being the holdouts that forced him to make a concession. Make sense? It does. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back to the phone. I think Breeze held on. That's right, Breeze. You still there?
8: Hey, so let's, let's let me simplify this. If the Republicans were to ask their Democrat colleagues who they wanted to be Speaker, they would say McCarthy. If the Republicans asked their constituents who they wanted to be Speaker, they would say they didn't want McCarthy. I would say the majority would. Would you agree,
0: Kid? I would agree overwhelmingly. He'd probably lose that 65-35.
8: So what does that say about our Republican representatives in the House and the Senate? you have 200 of them willing to vote against their constituency and vote for the guy that the Democrats would most like to have. Same thing happened in the Senate. Now, here's another thing. I want back to go back to my COVID thing. Ken, I'll tell you what I think they've done with the vaccine. Now, bear with me. It's, you may say it sounds like a conspiracy, but it makes perfect sense. When you come up with a medicine, what is your goal? Your goal is to have people take it, not once, but always, right? Correct. Yeah, you get more money. You get more money, right? Correct. So, if I come up with a quote-unquote vaccine, okay, and I make that vaccine to where, yes, it may offer you some protections or whatever, but at the same time, it destroys your natural immunity. To where you have to take a booster every two months, and that booster destroys your natural immunity even more, then you reach a situation to where you are going to have to have a vaccine every two months for the rest of your life, and that is. And, and if I went through the, to the president of Pfizer and said I have come up with a drug that every American will have to take for the rest of the rest of their life. Guess what, brother? That's money, and I tell you what I would like to see. I would like to see the, South, the state of South Carolina, our guys, do what they're doing in Florida, and start there and convene the grand jury and find out exactly what the hell these pharmaceutical companies are doing, how they colluded with the government to deceive and lie to us because it has been a big lie, and also I'd like to go get down to the bottom, you know, about it. Whether or not this vaccine is actually causing all this death. But the problem is, you don't go get John Gotti to investigate John Gotti because he's going to find John Gotti innocent every time if you dig what I'm putting down, brother.
0: Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Valid points. Makes a lot of sense there. Um, th- th- there's a lot of questions that we've not been allowed to even debate about the vaccine. I think people would be more comfortable or not with the vaccine had we been allowed to have some of the, I don't know, the legitimate debates that it seems now we were never allowed to have. Let's go to the phone. Charles and Lamar. Morning, Charles. Good morning. Good morning, so, sir. Uh,
9: the last year they did the a budget was 1997, if I remember correctly. That's correct. And the federal budget deficit was $1.6 trillion. And now today it's what, 31.4 trillion. We've spent $6.3 trillion since Joe Biden has been president that we don't have. And he's uh, he's announcing to audiences that he's reduced the federal budget deficit since he's been in office. Hell, it's grown just it's grown $6.3 trillion since then. Um, We've got to get back to the basics. As far as this stuff with the speaker is concerned, I don't care if this goes on for two years, they can't just put somebody in there that's going to rubber stamp everything and say, yeah, let's go along. Let's kick this can down the road. And as long as there's no speaker, Biden can't send tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine that he's going to get 10% back through money laundering for the big guy. So I don't care if it goes on for two years. I'm not worried about it a bit. Y'all have a great day.
0: Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. I've got an insider who says the same thing Charles just said. Let's let this go on for, you know, a month or two or three. Um, now, now, the debt ceiling's fast approaching. And and a lot of this is about the, the nervousness Democrats and some Republicans have. Well, let's be honest. A lot of Republicans, most Republicans have with the debt ceiling and funding the government. Now, that's two separate things. And I tried to, to just explain it yesterday, you know. I shouldn't put this on my credit card, or I shouldn't pay my credit card bill. But the debt ceiling is not I shouldn't put it on my credit card. The debt ceiling is I shouldn't pay the bill. But but Charles is exactly right. Since 1997, we've averaged 4.5 continuing resolutions per year, stopgap funding, omnibus bills. We've not governed the way our founders intended us to govern. We've not properly um, appropriated dollars, and and I hate to be redundant, but I'll do it again because our listeners are in and out. There are 12 appropriation committees, subcommittees in the House. They include Agriculture, Rural Development, Food, Drug Administration, Commerce, Justice, Science, and Related Agencies, Defense Spending, Energy and Water Development, Financial Services, Homeland Security, Interior, Environment, and Related Agencies, Labor, Health, and Human Services, Legislative Branch military construction, veterans' affairs and related agencies, state foreign operations, transportation, housing, and urban development and related agencies. There are 12 subcommittees that are to vet whether or not to authorize this money to be spent on this program or capital expenditure, whatever it is. Um, I've done it at the county level. I've seen it at the state level. And both of those entities, government agencies, operate under a balanced budget amendment. Philip Lowe will have to tell some group no. When, when, when Philip on the Ways and Means marks up a budget and Philip creates a line item, and Philip's job is going to try to do what? Go to bat for his constituency. I mean, you know, Lowe is on the Ways and Means. Um, he and Jay Jordan and the House will work together to prioritize what needs to be spent, but, but they'll be in constant communication with the Speaker and, and the Ways and Means, other members of the Ways and Means, and they'll probably, they'll probably ask for too much. But they'll get told no. I mean, somebody on the way, and, and when they get told no, Low Jordan will have to go to their constituency. Let's say the county needs money for something. Let, hypothetically, let's say the city requests for the state to help bail them out on their negligence of uh, the critical infrastructure that is water. And they need $200 million. I mean, that's their number, $200 million to fix the water. They go to Low and say, we need $200 million to fix the low. Well, well says, I can't get you $200 million. No way in the world. Uh, there's eight million in some of these federal programs. I can get a match here or a match there. So, so Philip will be forced to tell the city of Florence, "No, we can't. We don't have two hundred million to give you. It's not a matter of where you, whether you were negligent or not. I don't have that much money. I mean, I'm sharing some of these, um, some of these tax revenues with other members of the Ways and Means. So it leaves the Ways and Means. It goes to the Senate. Mike Rickenbaugh has a a list of priorities, things he wants to do for his district. But but guess what? Both of those men will have to do. They'll answer to the bottom line. They will have to tell someone, no, you can't get this much. If the city of Florence were a federal uh, water agency, somebody would figure out a way to not say no, but rather borrow the money to make up whatever the, um, the margin is to get them to whatever number it is they need. That's how you end up $31 trillion in debt. You don't appropriate properly, and you don't tell anybody no. And the reason the Congress doesn't want to do that, it's easy to win elections when you told everybody yes, and you didn't have to vote on anything that enlightened the American public about the money we're spending that we don't have. I mean, imagine if your options as a member of Congress were, either I tell Freehold no, or I tell the American people we're spending, and I'm supporting, a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. And eventually, that debt comes home to roost. I mean, imagine the options there. But but if you can skirt those options, if you don't have to answer and be held accountable to that reality, it's easy to be a member of Congress. It's hard to be a member of the General Assembly because you got to tell people no. That the, you, you, there, There's a balanced budget amendment. You don't deficit spend. Imagine Washington having to operate like a local or state government where Lindsey Graham said, I can't vote for this omnibus bill, despite what might be in it for Raytheon, despite how hawkish I may be and how much I believe in national security. I can't vote for this bill because we don't have $1.7 trillion. I mean, it's not even an option. But but in Washington, it's la-la land. It's make-believe. And that's what some of these holdouts are saying. Let's get back to reality. Let's get back to practicality. Give me some representation on the rules committee that will allow these bills and amendments to be debated as they should. Let's get back to affording these 12 appropriation subcommittees the authority to spend or not. That's the entire argument. And once again, and I I think most will agree with this, there are a handful of holdouts who want to be famous. There are a handful of holdouts who want to write a book or have a television show or, or a radio show. They want to be a celebrity. They see this as an opportunity. But, but I know Ralph Norman well enough. Ralph is serious about this debt. Chip Roy is serious about these rule committees. Now, now does he want four? Has McCarthy agreed to give him three? I don't have any idea. I mean, I'm not privy to those sorts of debates. I mean, that's some of the caucus meetings. And those get, I mean, they're very concessionary in, in nature. Will you concede this? Yeah, how about that? No, okay, if you don't do that, uh, I think I could get two more. To go. I mean, that, that's politics, the art of politics. But the art of politics has been lost in Washington because there's not the responsibility to spend money like Lowe and Jordan and Rickenbaugh have. And I'm not, I'm not patting those guys on the back, but they have a much harder job at the state level. Because once again, when they get requests that, that you know include a billion dollars worth of expenditures and they're only able to get $400 million dollars, there's 600 million that they've got to go tell somebody no that's the way it should work. what is government's priority when, when the when the um, when the defense Appropriation subcommittee gets together and the defense oversees funding for the military, the intelligence community um, other national security related agencies w- what if Lindsey Graham sat on that defense Oh, uh, he's as a senator what if um uh, Jeff Duncan Jeff would be a bad example because he's a fiscal conservative. I mean, Jeff's one of the guys that believes we've got to get back to, to budgeting is the way we should. Um, but but it, 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 it's, it's odd that we as Republicans only have 20 willing to hold out in the name of fiscal sanity. The Democrats make no bones about it, but they're in lockstep. If King Jeffries became Speaker of the House, and I said earlier the number's not 218, it's 213, jordan excuse me um mccarthy has zero chance to get 218 zero he has a one in three chance of getting to 213 and if he gets to 213 jeffries is at 212 there's no republican going to vote for hakeem jeffries so 13 with a certain number of present votes makes kevin mccarthy speaker of the house that's probably their strategy can we get to 213 have enough presence where that is the, the majority of people voting by a candidate or for a candidate by name. That's where we are. But, but the American people have not been told that some of this debate is about appropriations. Some of this debate is about the Rules Committee. Now, now, here's the travesty or the sad part of all this. Charles cares. Everybody's called into this show, cares. How many Americans today don't even know we're having a debate about a speaker? Take it a step further. I mean, 50% of Americans today probably have no idea we're having this, you know, first-in-100-year a debate about who the Speaker of the House of Representatives is going to be. What percentage of Americans understand that some of the holdouts are requesting things that government's supposed to do anyway? That's the travesty in all this. The The, the voter engagement, the apathetic American public have allowed these people to skirt responsibility. If you are informed... Enough to hold these people accountable, they would probably be forced to not, um, to, to at least do a budget since 1997. Guys, we've averaged 4.5 continuing resolutions per year for 25 consecutive years. We've deficit spent every one of those years. We're deficit spending to the tune of about $1 trillion annually. And we profess to be the world's superpower. That can't be the case. You can't square that up. Let's go to the phone, Jim and Florence. Good morning, Jim.
10: Hey, good morning, guys. So, Ken, in 1997, I was eight years old. But um, the 21 who refused to vote for McCarthy, I include including that the uh, lady from Illinois who votes present. They are demanded to explain themselves, but no one, not even the anti McCarthy crowd, demands that Fry, Mace, Wilson, Duncan, Timmons, and the other pro McCarthy crowd explain their vote. Um, I really, truly, I, I'm with Charles. I hope this lasts forever. Um, the last thing I want Congress to do is accomplish anything, uh, because when they do accomplish things it, uh, for Wall Street and bomb builders, um, but, Ken, um, something else I'd also like to talk about um, locally. I said several weeks ago that violence in our schools is a problem. Um, and you kind of pushed back on me a little bit. Um, but the, And I talked about how it's creating a hidden tax on parents who care about their children's education because they're forced to send them to private school. Um, we had a kid thrown from a balcony yesterday. Now, that's according to his mother school district's trying to paint a little bit different picture, but based on the propensity of public education to lie, I'll take the word of the mother. We have a problem in our public school system, um, throughout South Carolina. Um, we talk about things that need to be defunded, um, public education. We need to have a serious conversation about, um, what we allocate to public education, how we allocate it, um, and what we do with those funds. Um, to be hyperbolic, I would certainly say we need to defund public education and move that money uh, to a point where parents decide where the children go to school um, and, and how that education looks for their children. Um, but we have a serious problem with public education um, that needs to be addressed right here locally. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. I did push back on Jim a little bit because – The statistics, and we can argue about who's doctoring the statistics or not. Um, It'll be very interesting this year to watch the General Assembly attempt to work with a change agent as superintendent of education. Ellen Weaver ran as a reformer. Ellen Weaver is genuinely intentional in wanting to reform public education in South Carolina. But Ellen can't do this without the General Assembly. Is, is the General Assembly in South Carolina willing to work hand in hand with a reform agent as Superintendent of Education? We've never had one. We've never had a declared change agent as Superintendent of Education. Is the General Assembly willing to go down the road um, of, of you know performance and proficiencies and and you know forget test scores for a second. And I think Jim's on to something here. I mean, you know teacher safety, Student safety has to be priority. Um, are they safe? What are we doing to keep them safe? How safe are they in relation to other school districts around not just the state but the nation? Um, what are we doing to hold the bad kids responsible, to hold the bad teachers responsible? I think this is a, um, I mean, it's a chance to give a 35,000-foot a perspective on education in South Carolina. It's been underwhelming. I mean, it's not performed admirably for a, at least a generation, probably a couple of generations, but we've not had a willing hand or a helping or assisting hand in the superintendent of education's office. We have that now. The general assembly could say Molly Spearman wasn't serious about reform. You know, um, and his wasn't serious about reform and they were right. None of those folks were serious about reform. They were agents for some of the teachers union, some of what I call the education cartel, the education status quo. We've got somebody now who has declared themselves ready, willing, and able to help reform public education in South Carolina. How willing is the General Assembly to in, in assisting her reform public education in South Carolina? That is a very, very—I said before the election, and Revel, Revel vouched for this— the most important election in South Carolina last year was superintendent of education. Mm-hmm. Will, once again, will the General Assembly and and Eleanor Weaver come up with a game plan to radically. I didn't say slightly radically reform public education in South Carolina. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's loud and proud of this business. <laughs> That's half the battle. Just being louder and prouder than just about anybody else. I don't know what I'm talking about, but somebody who does is Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern. He's with us this morning from our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you?
11: Uh, Listen, I would argue that anybody who tells you that they know how this is going to (laughs) end the speaker's race probably doesn't know what they're talking about yet either.
0: Yeah, well, I spent two and and a half hours this morning trying to explain how I think we got here, but where do you think we go from here, Jared?
11: Um, boy, um, there were some big concessions made uh late last night between mccarthy allies and mccarthy opponents as it relates to some of the the house rules packages the process for voting to remove a speaker even membership on some key committees like the rules committee um and this agreement between um uh republican linked super PACs and um uh Outside organizations over uh, sort of staying neutral in primary races. So these are all things that conservatives uh, opposed to McCarthy had been asking for. I think the question now is does that move the needle enough? Um, and do they continue with this sort of exercise of voting, 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 or do they try and come in at noon today, see if they can adjourn, maybe not for a couple of hours, but for a longer period of time, right? And then reconvene once they kind of have settled all of this out. Um, those are their two options, right? When the House comes in at noon, only two things can happen. They can start round seven of the Speaker balloting, or they can adjourn. That's it. They're not allowed constitutionally to do anything else.
0: Jared, is the new number 213, I, I argued earlier this morning, that you know, the, the, the membership voting present, but not in the name of a certain candidate or other, or is the number yeah. still 218 from your perspective?
11: Well, listen, I, it could be 213, but do people vote present? I mean, and, and that's a risky kind of gambit um, without uh, an assurance of how many people will vote uh, present. Uh, because, as you know, um, the top vote getter through this whole process has been Hakeem Jeffries. Mm-hmm. And so there could be a, a scenario where you get uh, enough uh, of the conservatives to, to jump over to McCarthy and the rest. Promise instead of voting for somebody else, they'll vote present. Um, that has not been um, the strategy that some of these conservatives have laid out. And I think that's the other issue, too, right, is as we talk about these negotiations and whether they move the needle or not. You know, you had some of these conservatives who have been opposed to McCarthy leave yesterday sort of talking about, listen, this is healthy, this is good, we're having productive conversations. And um, you know, we're starting to move, uh, getting a little bit of what we want and, and understanding kind of why we want that. At the same time, Matt Gates, who has been a very vocal critic of Kevin McCarthy, said that he'll vote all day, all night, all week, uh, all month, uh, as long as it takes. And never, he said, for Kevin McCarthy. So um, does that mean voting present or does that mean uh, actively voting for, for somebody else? And if that's the case, is he sort of voting is there an agreement to vote in a block is there is everybody kind of individuals at this point and on their own um that's why I say that if you kind of know how this is going to end it's really just a guess but you're right there is a scenario in which 213 would be enough for Kevin McCarthy but you know as we've seen with Democrats holding firm and not voting like they're here right they they're not absent they are here uh it it could be a risky gambit
0: you know one of the interesting parts Jared and I'll, I'll say this and let you go to me, there, there's two factions of the holdouts. There are those who are attention seekers. They want a television show, mm-hmm. or a radio show, write a book. But there's a couple of guys that have made a legitimate, principal debate about why they're not comfortable with McCarthy. I hope the majority sure. of, of Americans pay attention to that and not these three or four that are out there trying to make a name for themselves um, by being a member of Congress.
11: Well, listen, I think that that's one of the frustrations, too, from um, a, a lot of, uh, rank-and-file Republicans, right? Those who are supportive of McCarthy, um, who are eager to, to get to work, um, who have said that, you know, we don't know if we make these concessions that that's even going to be enough, right? And that I think you're right. You're speaking to a lot of frustrations that uh, I have heard. Um, from most of the Republican conference. Keep in mind, most of the Republican conference, the overwhelming majority of the Republican conference, more than 200 members of the 222-member Republican conference, have voted for Kevin McCarthy. And they have argued that we are in a position now where um, you have about 10% who's able to grind everything to a halt. And for what, right, if, if the concessions that are being made still aren't
0: enough? Well explained. Thank you, Jared. Appreciate your time. Thank you. It's kind of an interesting. I mean, there's two sources: John Decker, Jared Halpern. Both have agreed, um, somewhat, I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. That um, today's first vote is a big deal, and uh, I, I think Jared that. even said they may not vote at twelve today. Uh, go, go, you know, vote and adjourn, and and go back to work and try to make these concessions. And and I think I'm. I mean, I, you tell me, Rev. I mean, you you you're an observer of this as I am, Freehold. You are as well, but um. There seems to be factions within the, the faction. And by that, I mean there seems to be easily identifiable members of Congress who like the attention. Now, now, once again, I don't know what their motivation is, but they appear to really like the fact that they get a chance to go on Hannity show and argue with Hannity, mm-hmm. or they get a chance to go on Levin's show and argue with Levin, or Bongino's show and argue with Bongino. Um, but there are others, and I think Ralph Norman made a very substantive debate Yesterday when he came on and said, this is about spending, this is about budgeting. Well, well when you say it's about spending and budgeting, what you're basically saying is, I, I don't like the way the rules committees allow bills or amendments to make its way to the floor. See, we're not members of Congress. We don't understand that nuanced world. We understand some of the lingo, enough to be dangerous, some of the acronyms, CD, I mean, you know, um, CBO and, and CD. I mean, we, we understand the, the, the verbiage of government to some degree, but, but we don't understand the inner workings. I mean, it would take Russell Fry, it'll take him a while to understand. So how many people even knew how long it's been since they've done the actual budgeting process? Well, I knew it had been a while. I mean, I really and truly did. I knew it had been 20 years. 25? Yeah, 25. I didn't know that. Wow. I, I didn't I mean, who who knew would, it? tell you what I didn't know. Um, I didn't know how many continuing resolutions we'd done every year since 97. I mean, I knew we spent money, and I knew we spent a bunch of money we didn't have. So if you don't budget, your subcommittees don't gather and appropriate as they should. You don't vet whether we should spend this money or not, but you're still spending it. You got to find another vessel or vehicle of which um, legally allows you to spend the money. And, and that goes back to my criticism of Lindsay. And I've tried to be fair to Lindsay. I mean, I really and truly have, and I've defended Lindsay a lot on this show when, when, when callers didn't want Lindsay defended. Cause I think I understand to some degree, the confusion, you know what I mean? The, the, um, the situation you can find yourself in as a politician in the majority or minority. But I think when Lindsay voted, for the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill, he did what 90% of his voters didn't want him to do. That's not a 50-50 call as far as I'm concerned. I understand Senator Cotton, Senator Graham have a history, and I and I believe this about Lindsey, and I think this about Senator Cotton. I think they believe that the world is a better place the more money America spend on, spends on its military budget, defense budget. I mean, I don't. But I respect that argument. I think there's a fair debate to be had between the McConnell, excuse me the um, the Cottons and Grahams of the world and the Rand Pauls of the world, the Josh Haldys of the world, the J.D Vances of the world. That, that is intellectual political debating and arguing. And I think there's a I mean there's a lot of substance there. you know should Raytheon have this contract? Should Honeywell have that contract? Should we explore the next greatest you know um, fighter jet? I mean, yeah. I mean, those are very, very sensitive and important debates to have. Um, but you don't look if they're that damn important, then why do you lump them in a one point seven trillion dollar omnibus bill? But because you don't want to tell the American people we're spending money we don't have. And then you've got Biden and and McConnell, you know, and, and they're you know one hundred sixty years old between them. Uh, imagine that. I mean, you got two of the most powerful people on the planet combined age one hundred sixty. <laughs> I mean, they're they're not in a in a senior home in a wheelchair eating cereal. I mean, they're two of the leaders of the free world. One's the president, and the other is the minority leader in the Senate. Easily could be the majority leader in two years from now. Um, that's discouraging to me. And 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 when I when I you know there's a there's a sensibility of me of mine, and and it's not rational. I mean, I'll admit it's irrational. Um, I think you know we've had several callers call this morning: J.T., Jim, Charles, Breeze. Um, I don't care how long it goes on. Well, there's a little bit of me that finds uh, that, that kind of gratifying and satisfying. You know, they've not done what they're supposed to do for so long. I'm fine with them doing nothing. But it's going to damage the Republican brand if the debt ceiling passes. We don't pay. Our, so, you know, let, let's see what happens. I mean, I would imagine they'll barricade uh, the state parks. And you know how they'll always make it a penalty and punishment to the American right. public. Right because they can't get their fiscal house in order they punish us mm. by not allowing us to go to you know to Yellowstone National Park or some of the other beautiful national uh natural assets and resources Plus those that make we have
1: good photo ops for mainstream media
0: okay oh, yeah, sure see what the Republicans have done again um I just think there's a there's an expansion within the Republican Party that centers itself on America first and I think when you look at defense spending, there, there's a lot of criticism by Republican voters about the amount of money we spend in, in, in the name of Amer- American imperialism. That, that's my, you know, I didn't coin that phrase, but I think it's appropriate. Um, that's kind of what we're in the business of doing. Lindsey and Cotton, to their credit, and, and I'll give them both credit for this, they've been consistent. I mean, any time that Tom Cotton has had a chance to increase spending in our defense budget, he's done it and he's justified it. In his own way, Lindsay, same way. But how do you defend allowing if you think that is so important? How do you defend it being lumped into forty-five billion dollars going to Ukraine, an an increase in defense spending higher than what the White House requested? requested. How do you how do you legitimize that? How do you validate that the principle of government and your job as a senator when that one is in a one-point-seven-trillion-dollar omnibus bill? I mean, if the American people knew how to take serious or not. What government's doing, it'd be. I mean, it'd be funnier than Seinfeld. But the majority of us don't. The majority of us are too busy what? Watching Seinfeld, living our lives, raising our families, working our jobs, doing what it is we enjoy doing. And every now and then, a moment happens every hundred years. And I wish we would better engage, more highly engage, uh, be be more in tune with understanding exactly why these the 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 American public will believe what these 20 people are doing, because CNN says this is what they're doing, or Wall Street Journal says this is what they're doing. And I do believe there's some self-serving in play here. I do believe there's some publicity-seeking in play here. But but I also think the Chip Roy Ralph Normans of the world see our country heading into the financial abyss. And the only way to stop that is to play a hand every chance you get. And they've got a chance to stop a speaker from getting elected that they believe will continue business as usual take a break back in just a minute eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is our number let's go to the phone someone's there daphne and dylan good morning daphne
12: good morning uh, ken you said yesterday that people that uh, are in the senate count on you forgetting because they're in office for six years well unfortunately people like me don't forget uh, the thing that Lindsey Graham did, and he's been doing forever, is the fact that you say he signed on to a $1.7 trillion bill. He, in fact, has signed on to a, over $3 trillion that Biden has spent. Because if you recall, he went on the houseboat with Manchin, came back signed on to the infrastructure, non-infrastructure bill that only spent uh, less than 10% on infrastructure. You've got to understand that 90% was on the new green energy deal and that Lindsey Graham, even when Obama was president, president, he signed on to the cap and trade bill i got a letter in my possession where he touted every talking point of all the Democrats on the cap and trade. Also in the Senate, if you vote for culture, it's like voting for a bill. And he voted for culture on everything the Democrats wanted to bring to the floor. Also, He voted for every Obama nominee, no matter how bad they were. He, McCain, and Rubio helped Obama fund and arm ISA. They went to the Turkish border and met with the leader of ISA, who they called Rebels, and then helped arm them. So what I think we ought to do Is every politician, every person that runs for office, we ought to find out exactly how much money, how much assets they have, and then at the end of their term, go into everything they have accumulated since they've been in that office. That would solve some problems. Okay? Thank you.
0: Thank you, Daphne. You appreciate that. The the only thing I can say about Senator Graham is he wins in landslides. I mean you can say what well, he did True. this, and he did that and he, and he let us down here and he let us down there um every 6 years Lindsey puts his name on a ballot and he wins in a landslide um he's avoided a quality candidate he's um been better funded he's a a consummate insider I mean whatever I mean there are a lot of yeah there there are a lot of angles I wish look at Senator Graham's um career and he's had a love hate relationship with the Republican primary voter of South Carolina I mean Lindsey knows that Lindsey's a very capable, smart, savvy politician. He's somewhat of a survivor. He's not the, um, the quintessential conservative. I mean, there are certain conservative uh, proclivities he has, and there are other uh, that he's not so conservative. The, the, the thing with Lindsey right now is I think his heart is in kind of a globalist interventionist mindset. I mean, historically, that's where Lindsey's being. And, you know, and once again, guys, I think there's a fair debate. I mean, I'm an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist. But, I, but I, I know that there's another side that can rationalize their position as easily as I can. It's not like whether we appropriate or not. I don't know how you defend the way we've operated in Congress. I mean, I don't. I don't know why we believe that 4.5 continuing resolutions every year since 97 is, is reasonable. I mean, that that's, that's crazy. I mean, anybody with half a brain knows that. But if we're going to sit down and argue, you're on one side of the table, I'm on the other i'm an anti-globalist anti-interventionist republican you're a globalist interventionist republican there there's some there's some debate there i mean there's some meat on that bone there's some seriousness to that discussion but but in an age and era of republican politics where it seems that um that the energy and and enthusiasm is on the side of the anti-intervention anti-globalist mindset lindsay steele has a a relevant role in our politics and, you know, I hear Daphne loud and clear. I hear it every day. I mean, I do not I d I don't I don't walk around many days and I don't bump into somebody who asked me what my opinion of Lindsey Graham is. And they're more than willing to share their frustration <laughs> and, and you know, anxiety about having him in the Senate as a a representative of South Carolina. All I can tell you is every six years, he doesn't just survive, I mean he wins big. In, in, in big fashion, so he's not that out of touch with—he may be out of touch with our audience. There's no doubt about that. Lindsey may be out of touch with our audience. He's not out of touch with Republican primary voters in South Carolina, and the results show that. So, so I hear Daphne, and I hear that over and over and over and over again. Who's our senator? How long has he been our senator? How many races has he lost— as a Republican running in South Carolina. I mean, (laughs) the record is, as Bill Parcells said, you are what your record says you are. Take a break. Back in a minute.
2: Maybe here I am. Kicking dust in
9: the canyon Waiting for that sun to go down Made it up more holland dry Hell bent on getting
1: high High above the lights of town You and
9: tequila make me crazy.
5: Like poison in my blood. One more knack kill
6: me, baby. One is
0: one to me. One more is never done. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. We're going to do better in 2023 than we did in 2022 we were spectacular at about everything but there were a couple of things we we (laughs) said that with a straight face probably (laughs) needed to tighten up a bit on and one is the place for the music we weren't quite as consistent Uh, on our music we'd get gommed up and jammed up and sideways with phone calls and you aggravating cusses who won't call in and say so much about you know how you see the world and uh, not give the host his proper time schedule a guest right at 905 and we didn't want to make them wait. Too. Yeah, correct. I mean we'd have a guest from Fox News and we want to be respectful of their time and not play. But we've got to get more consistent. You've told me for a long time that one of the um one of the uh one of the beauties of radio is this predictability. It's going to be there. You know, they're going to do certain things at certain times. That's right. You're going to hear the weather on twice on. between you know, your and, and it may bore you to some degree, but it does inform you. It's dependable. It's it's always there. It's your friend. It's your um i've said that a hundred times it didn't take me long to figure out what radio was it's your friend at times it's an intimate friend uh at times it's a distant friend uh i don't care for that song it's a distant friend i don't care what that guy's talking about it's a distant friend all of a sudden the guy on the radio says something you're a little bit curious about you turn it up it's all of a sudden an intimate friend and it's your compadre it's riding along with you wherever wherever it is um you're choosing to go we're going to try to make an announcement tomorrow. I make Rev nervous when I go down this road because I don't run it by anybody. I mean, I just kind of, <laughs> I just kind of say this. We've been working with corporate for a while, and um, anyway, we we um we made what um, nothing. Okay. Nothing dad, for fair enough. Um, <laughs> I'm doing it anyway, whether they tell me I can or not. <laughs> anyway, eight, four, three, three olds looking at me like, what is it? I mean, I don't even know about this. You don't know. You know a little bit about it, but not not all about it. Um, anyway um the eagles are playing in columbia in march am i right that's all that okay this is the hotel california tour but they're they're playing with an orchestra and a choir what's up with that i don't know you know what it is i mean i told you during the break (laughs) they're old and need help (laughs) (laughs) they've got a choir i mean when when you're when you're in your 70s and they're well in their 70s by now i mean glenn fry's deceased So, so instead of fry's son and i don't think he'll be with them but vince gill will so you got joe walsh timothy b schmidt glenn fry excuse me don henley and vince gill the new eagles i guess is what we'll uh, what mm-hmm. we'll call them but they're going to be at the colonial life arena i've always enjoyed this about colonial life arena you ready i've always enjoyed a big eagles fan who loves the tigers <laughs> you know what i mean walking into that and that big chicken's hanging down and the garnets everywhere um you're surrounded by Garnet and Black, mm-hmm. but you love the Eagles. I um, had a good friend of mine reach out, and I, I've actually asked you about this. Good listener, good friend um, who's had some issues recently asked me about tickets to a Journey concert in, uh, in Columbia, and he's a big Clemson fan, and I want to get them for him just so he has to go to the <laughs> Colonial Life Arena <laughs> oh. and watch um. Yeah, I wish it was the Gamecock Arena instead of the Colonial, Colonial Life That's Arena. But, um, but, but the Eagles are coming to columbia colonial life arena in march but but rev said this morning they've got a, a choir and an orchestra and in, and in, in, you know in part of the show and i said well i mean they're they're old guys man they need uh, a little help <laughs> kenny Chesney, I, I, I,
1: I saw them in in 2018 last time i guess they played
0: at the colonial life and it was a great show it was great i saw them in north charleston when hell freezes over I Remember when they too. got back together and yeah. they began the show with hotel california and it was like wow I mean, if you're going to start with this, you know where do we end up? And it was a um. I mean, they, they, they're they I said it yesterday, I'll say it to you, they wrote the soundtrack of our lives. I mean, if you're a kid of the late '70s, early '80s, and that's when you were um, you know, doing what young men do. Um, they were kind of um talking about the radio. You know, they were in lockstep with nearly everything. I mean, I, I hear an Eagles song, and I think of the '70s and '80s and where I was and what I was doing and what I should have been doing and what I wasn't doing and I uh, was doing something I shouldn't have been. Doing. But anyway, I want to go back to Chesney because okay. uh, Kenny Chesney reminds me of Tennessee. I mean, he's a big volunteer fan. Um, he's a, a, a product of Tennessee, a proud um, native of Tennessee. The Tennessee General Assembly is going to pass a law. Check this out now. Tennessee General Assembly is going to pass a law that if you are found guilty of felony DUI, And as a result of that charge, the parent of a kid is killed. You're responsible for child support. In other words, you've orphaned a kid. You were drunk, got behind the wheel of a car driving. You ran into or ran over a parent of a kid and killed that kid. You're now responsible, monetarily, the the parent, I'm sorry, the parent, you're now you now have a monetary responsibility for caring for that kid here's my point though how I mean how if, if you if you run over a parent or, or or have an accident that includes killing someone you're drunk you're charged with with DUI or, or you know DUI homicide how do you I mean if you go to prison or jail how do you make money to sustain or support the kid you see where I'm headed I mean, unless you've got, yeah. a, unless you're a trust fund baby, unless you've got a uh, you know a million dollar 401k, I mean, it, most of us don't. I mean, most people are doing what, working as hard as they can to make ends meet and provide for their family and hope to have a little bit left over uh, when you're too old to work. But but the majority of people, so, so I understand the concept. What do you think of that? I mean, what do our listeners think of that, Frio? What do you think of that? I mean, you haven't said much today, um, but but well, I mean, if if you are, I mean, if you're in the state of Tennessee. And you're driving a car while drunk and you run over a person and you kill that person you run into another car and kill that person and that person is the parent of a child you have a financial responsibility to that child but how do you meet that financial responsibility if you're incarcerated and don't have the ability to make money what, what, what do we think of that
1: well and, and wouldn't it come down to insurance companies really at some point i, I don't know but I, mean, I, mean,
0: I don't know i mean are we going to have to have a rider? I mean, is there, um, as part of your policy or coverage, it includes this Tennessee Think, law?
1: Things usually
0: sure do end up. So, so, so the, so the, the, the insurance policy will will have a provision that's exclusive to Tennessee that says if you run over um, the parent of a child and you're drunk, you you know you don't have to worry about paying out whatever the um the child support is. I mean, in essence, you're paying, you know, you're paying child support it's just' it's odd yeah. to me and, and I understand the concept the concept is you chose to drive
1: drunk and that there's was a and choice the,
0: and you ran over the the parent of a kid and that that parent was going to be financially responsible for caring for that yeah. kid well the parent can't now so so instead of making the state I guess responsible for caring for the kid now you've got an offender. Who has to be? I mean, what does what, what a rough and, and tumbling New, uh, New Jersey guy think of that?
11: I, I agree with both you. And Dave said, uh, it, here's the thing. We pay so much money for insurance, and we almost get nothing out of it other than, like, we get to keep our car in the road. How about we make a good portion of what we pay going to specific stuff like that?
0: Now, now I'm just kind of an interesting—I mm-hmm. just found it was interesting— Anyway, me that. I mean, the singing, concept
1: actually makes some sense. I mean, from a, from a humanistic standpoint, and you know, somebody caused the death of somebody that wouldn't have otherwise happened. Okay, in this scenario, and yes, there is now. There's, I mean, this is the result, and you have a child that doesn't have a parent and the ability to provide for that child. So how 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 do you see that? How, how do you even? That I'm, up? I'm with
0: you. you I, the I'm, concept, I'm, I'm one thousand percent with concept. you until until. You incarcerate the perpetrator of the crime right How does the, how does the, how does that how does that criminal if they
1: go to jail? How,
0: how do they make the money to meet the obligation yep. responsibility? In other words, the general Assembly says if you don't care for this kid you're breaking the law. but but I, I'm tell, I, look I made a grave mistake. I, I, I got behind the wheel of a car I was drinking, I ran over somebody I killed them, I orphaned a kid. I mean that, that's the most terrible mistake I've ever made in my life. But now you're telling me I'm breaking the law because I'm not providing for the kid. But you got me in prison. You got me in jail. Uh, you know what, what are the what are the charges? I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I, a, 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 you know, a law enforcement agent. I'd love to hear from somebody out there who is. What is the penalty for someone who gets in in a car behind the wheel of a you know drunk driving when someone is killed? I mean, what is the punishment or penalty? How many years in jail? I good a lawyer. What what sort of um what sort of consequence is there for making that fatal mistake?
11: Well, aren't the uh... Involuntary manslaughter rules—they differ from state to state, correct? Right? Uh, yeah, sure, They're. they
0: do. No, no, question about it. Um, th- there are certain states that are a little bit more lenient. Th- there are certain states that are that are incredibly rigid. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a crime to get behind the wheel and and drive wh- while drinking. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we've made that clear. Um, so, so, so the first step is deciding to get behind the wheel of a car while intoxicated. I mean, that's breaking the law. But, but the extreme is getting behind the wheel of a car while drunk and running into someone and killing that someone. So all of a sudden, that is not the most extreme scenario. The most extreme scenario now is getting behind the car, getting behind the wheel of a car drunk, running in or over someone and killing them, and them being a parent of a child. I mean, there's almost another degree of severity when it comes to um, – to that, I want to read the law. I mean, I read a story last night about the law, but I want to read um, the law. I Actually, sent it to a buddy of mine who's in politics, and he said his um, exact quote back to me: "Hmm, let me think on this for a while," because he's kind of in the in the in the middle of um, state politics in, in several states. He's a consultant and um, and I just wondered if he knew anything about how we got. Is Tennessee the first state to do this, and will other states um, follow suit? But 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 my point is. So, so I run over. I mean, it's, it's a tragedy. I mean, it's it's a tremendous tragedy. So I decide to drive drunk. I run into a car at one o'clock in the morning. That person gets killed. That person is on the way back from a plant. They work night shift at a plant. They've got two kids. I have orphaned two kids because I chose to be not just irresponsible. I chose to break the law. So, so is, is the penalty for me breaking the law going to prison? Because if the penalty for me breaking the law is going to prison, I've got no choice but to break the other law. Does that make sense? Right. I mean, you, 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 can't, even if you were ordered to pay, you have no means I, or way to I'm earn in prison, money man. Pay. How much are right. they going to make pay me to make license plates? Right. I mean, I don't have the ability to meet that obligation and responsibility. I mean, once again, the concept I totally and completely understand But but I think there's there's a diversion here that we've got to um, better understand. Um, You're going to I I broke the law. You're punishing me for breaking the law. But in punishing me for breaking that law, you're giving me no choice but to break the other law. And and once again, we're 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 talking about hypotheticals here. But but it's a law in Tennessee now that they will. I think they're going to begin enforcing uh, first of this year. I'll try to Google it during the break. Um, Kenny Chesney reminded me of that because he's a big Tennessee volunteer guy and my mind drifts off into, you know, the busy head syndrome kind of takes over from there. Somebody on the phone, Larry and Sumter listening to WDXY
1: morning, Larry.
8: Good morning. Uh, maybe I can help you out with the, the payment part. Uh, even if you're on child support payments in South Carolina and you go to the jail, your payments continue to go on. They don't stop. So it doesn't matter if you're in jail or not. Once you're assigned that child support payment, you have to. You are responsible for it, regardless of whether or not you're incarcerated.
0: Interesting. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Um, but but it, but it's still you're forcing me to break another law. You're giving me no choice. I once again, Rev said it. I understand the concept. I am in total agreement with the concept and intent. I mean, if you kill a parent and you leave a kid um, unable to provide for themselves and, and obviously they don't have a parent anymore to provide for them, I mean, there's a hardship there. I mean, you created a hardship case by, by your negligence or irresponsible behavior. But but you're giving me no choice but to break another law. And that's just, I mean, the, the oddity of that. Once again, I want to try to read the bill, better understand the bill. Is that something we would support in South Carolina? I mean, if, 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 if Low Jordan, and Rickenbaugh came tomorrow, and we walk through that scenario, they may not come now, and we walk through that scenario, wonder what their questions would be. See, the sausage is being made, and I got to believe at some time during the conversation in the Tennessee General Assembly, somebody said, probably a lawyer, how's that guy going to make, how's that guy going to make, how, how's he going to honor that, that penalty? You, you, does, does, the, does the meter run while he's in jail? Or while she's in jail, in other words, you know, you run over this person, you break this law. There's this punishment, but you force me to break this other law. And when I get out of jail for, you know, I don't what's the sentence for somebody who kills somebody? Reckless homicide, felony DUI. I don't know what the what the sentences are there. Um, I would imagine it's you know how much money you have for a good lawyer. Uh, can they minimize the the damage there? um do this for me uh rev if you don't mind mm-hmm. i mean i know you're doing some other things here no. not not doing your job but anyway um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah i know y- y'all are yeah but what what is the what is the normal punishment that's for actually, someone that's
1: actually what i was working okay. on and mike what, sent that to me. and what does I, this i'm say? just starting to read it i haven't read it yet okay so. um Driving an in influence, serious crime in South Carolina. Did you did you come to the information when you looked at that, Mike?
11: Yeah, I think um, it can range. Sometimes it could be uh, involuntary manslaughter or vehicular manslaughter. But like you said, um,
0: I, I think your lawyer um, can, you know, can dictate. He'll what plead, he I mean, yeah. he'll, you'll plead. I mean, you'll, you'll be charged All right, with it says, the
1: penalties for this crime range from fines of $10,100 to $25,100 and, or one to 25 years in prison. Okay.
0: Is there any, is there any scenario where someone drunk driving a car runs over into someone and kills them? Is there any scenario that that person doesn't go to prison for any period of time? I mean, I understand the DUI, but you're talking about felony now. You're talking about killing somebody. Is there any scenario in any state where a person drunk, driving a car, runs into or over someone, kills that person, that they don't go to jail or, or prison? See, that that's kind of an interesting—and once again, yeah, I'm not a lawyer. this one, the sentence says
1: 1 to 25 years. So if you read that through, it would mean it would be at least a year. Okay. Right, and that's
0: with an accident with deadly injury. Interesting. Unless you get a good lawyer that can plead you to a lesser— To a lesser charge that'd be kind of an interesting uh some of the law enforcement agents may know the answer to that question let's take a break we'll be back in just a few moments okay the house and senate have unanimously voted for the bill waiting on the governor to sign it into law I mean, who's not going to sign that into law i mean really and truly you talked about the concept i mean there's such a uh an intriguing concept there i mean if i'm a member if i'm the governor of tennessee i mean obviously there are nuances and and you know things we got to consider but how do you not sign a bill into law that says, you know, someone ran over someone's parent and left the child orphaned, and they don't have any responsibility to care for that kid? The bill gives the convicted one year to begin payments if they are unable to do so due to incarceration, and the payments would be required to continue until the child is eighteen years old. So there, there's some clarity there, but, but. That's, it's still a. It's but going to get complicated. On the, you're on the hook for it, though. Sure. I mean, you're, you're basically required to pay child support. I mean, it's not your kid, but you killed the person who cared for that kid. That's um, it's. it's I just. There's no way a governor doesn't sign that into law. Um, some of the insurance companies. I mean, you guys made interesting comments, and we we could. I mean, I'm telling you, this could be a very interesting story. I mean, do you now offer insurance to a to a driver? That, that covers the event of or the, you know, if indeed someone gets drunk, drives a car, kills another, kills the parent of a kid, um, now all of a sudden you got, you know, you're, you're, you're obligated to that. I mean, you made a terrible mistake. I mean, your life will never be the same to begin with. You made a horrible, horrible mistake and, and the worst outcome or scenario came to fruition. But, but there's still a financial component here. and And I just wonder if insurance companies will now in the state of Tennessee say hey we've got this other coverage this additional coverage we can offer and um, it costs this much more a month and you just got to believe that there will be that there's always and here's where government really goofs up and I don't think it's intentional because I I mean I understand what the house and senate were doing and I understand probably what the governor will do in Tennessee but if you drop that rock in the water remember what I've said those ripples, ripples I mean they end up somewhere and it's never as simple As, you know, government perceives it to be, it'll eventually get complicated. And sooner or later, I would argue the insurance companies will lobby the Tennessee General Assembly to insist to require everybody to have, you know, some sort of coverage that that does include, I mean, it's another way for insurance companies to make an extra buck or two or three. So eventually that'll probably be where we end up some modification of insurance, automobile insurance that forces everybody. doesn't matter if you drink or not. Um, and I know you Baptists don't, but it doesn't matter if you drink or not, you'll still be required to, you know, have this additional coverage. Because, once again, the Tennessee General Assembly, in its infinite wisdom, decided to do, you know, um, to, to do this uh, extracurricular legislation uh, to some degree. 843 661 937 is our number on a totally different subject um, and because
1: we've had some inquiries but state uh, the state flags are flying at half staff today mm-hmm. and some people were asking why that is um, the governor has ordered state flags at half staff
0: correct? Joe Taylor was a city council member in Columbia but he was a former commerce secretary under Mark Sanford um I could tell a couple of Joe Taylor stories Joe was very friendly a very kind, gracious to me when I ran for lieutenant governor. Um, I had several visits with Joe in his office in Columbia. He was a business guy. Um, he was an advocate for South Carolina. He was a, um, a kind of an aggressive person, uh, being a business-minded guy, didn't always fit in in government, got real frustrated at the, um, the lack of business friendliness in the city of Columbia recently, ran for city council, got elected, but, but I would argue that the state flags, or excuse me, the flags are at half staff because of Joe's service as Commerce Secretary under Governor Mark Sanford, and, um, and Joe was a gentleman of always very gracious to me, always very decent uh, in, in the dealings I had with him, and very, very sad, very unfortunate, died uh, around Christmas of a heart attack in his uh, early to mid-60s. Um, a lot of people don't know this about Joe, but if I'm not mistaken, Joe had bone cancer or something happened to his leg. I had had a diagnosis, prognosis of cancer. They had to amputate part of his leg. Very few people. Joe Joe was stubborn and didn't tell a lot of people that and continued to kind of operate in normal fashion as a result of. But his most recent political endeavor, he got real motivated because he felt the city of Columbia was not growing as fast as other metropolitan areas in our state because of its uh, lack of business friendliness. And he wanted to really involve himself in that and um and once again was kind of a sanfordite to begin with and by that i mean a little bit libertarian leaning um didn't care much for government but um but was quite the advocate cheerleader and and adored south carolina and uh it's a sad day i mean it really is i think joe's funeral if i'm not mistaken is today and um i would refer people to mark sanford's facebook post mark's a mixed bag we know that i know that you know that our listeners know that Mark can kind of cut both ways. You you like some things about Mark. You don't like other things about Mark. But Mark paid quite the tribute to Joe Taylor, who he put as secretary of commerce. And uh, that's why the flags in South Carolina are flying at half-staff. I, you know, I don't, I didn't have an extensive friendship with Joe, but I got to know him a little bit when I ran for lieutenant governor, being a former commerce secretary. Uh, being someone who was interested in economic development, I went and sat with Joe several times to try and better understand what he thought needed to be done to attract industry, grow our economy, uh, make our state as business-friendly as it possibly could be. And he was always very friendly with his time, very cordial, very polite, very decent, um, and gave me some money when I you know, ran for office. So um, Godspeed to Joe Taylor and his family, very unfortunate, and um, and somebody who loved South Carolina. When I think of Joe Taylor, I just think of somebody who had an enormous passion for the state of South Carolina, let's go to the ball. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Nick.
8: Sounds like we lost a good one. We did. Um, we, did. we did. We did. Happy New Year. Thinking on the Tennessee law, I was just wondering if a, if the estate would get a wrongful death suit, but would the kids? But then the kids would be in line. I would think with the
0: creditors. Is there, you know what I mean? Yep, sure I do. You're kind kind of making the argument. That's the argument I'm making. It It sounds real simple until you start unwinding uh, and and it gets real complicated. Not long, but it it doesn't take long to get very complicated.
9: No, I mean, because you
8: could have an umbrella policy. You could have, you know, underinsured and all that. But the kids still would need to be pushed to the top of the list, I would think. Yep. Anyway, it was
0: just a thought. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. I mean, what, what about a parent who made, what if the father made a million dollars a year or the father made twenty, you know, $35,000 a year? I mean, what, what do you base that on? And once again, I understand the intent and the concept. I mean, I think it's very, very, very honorable to try and, you know, for government to force somebody who made a very terrible decision to be held accountable and responsible for that very terrible decision. So, so let's leave the conceptual and, and get where the rubber hits the road. And I think Nick raised a question. There, there's a hundred other questions that will come into play. Um, insurance companies and, and you know, um, what, what is the amount? Um, who collects the amount? What if the person is a repeat offender and incarcerated for 10 years? You know, what happens then? Um, it's, once again, I, the, the concept is this typical government i mean you know words my, my father once told me and i'll never forget it. i've repeated it over the airways i would always go to him with a business proposal and it would be numbers on a sheet of paper and he'd always tell me in his own way son i've never seen a damn sheet of paper that wouldn't accept nick you know you can write you can any write number you want to on a sheet of paper you can tell me a million or a hundred thousand or five million i mean it, it'll all go on a sheet of paper w- what will it do You know, and I think very often politicians are guilty of sincerely. I mean, I think there's sincerity here trying to do the right thing, and it looks great on paper. But as the great philosopher Mike Tyson once said, you know, what happens when somebody gets hit in the mouth? Everybody has a plan until they indeed get hit in the mouth. And it took Nick, what, two seconds to come up with a very reasonable um, concern, and I think there will be, you know, other multiple concerns um, what, what led to this? I think there was an actual, it's called Bentley's law. That leads me to believe that there was some family member involved in this. Um, and according to USA today, 28 people are killed in drunk car, drunk driving accidents every day, which is about what, 10,000 people annually that die. But, um, it would be an honor. Well, here you go. The bill, if passed into law, would be in honor of a grandmother whose son was killed in a drunk driving accident along with his fiancee and four-month-old child in 2021. Um, the accident orphaned two kids, five-year-old Bentley and three-year-old Mason. So that would be horrible. Let me ask you this, Rev. If there's not a law on the book, what happens to those kids? I mean, if there's not a law on the book, what? what who has the financial responsibility of caring for a five- and three-year-old whose parent is no longer alive. Now, now once again, you know, m- most families are, too, well, I don't know if it is or not now. I mean, there was a day I could easily uh, say that most pa- families have two parents. And he said, I'm sure anymore it's pretty close. So really? About whether whether
1: to a family member or sure. somebody, somebody
0: yeah. who had been appointed by next, the next parents? Question. I would imagine. I mean, yeah. you know, but, but that's just, it's 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 the government trying to do good. But in the pursuit of trying to do good, it can easily get complicated and you got insurance companies and I'm not beating up. You got insurance companies and lawyers and you know, the courts and the government. I mean, how many people believe that if you involve insurance companies, the government, the court and and, uh, and lawyers, it's going to be simple or easy. No way. I mean, it's going to get real, real, real complicated. Um, but once again, the intent and concept are very honorable in trying to make sure that five-year-old Bentley, three-year-old Mason um, have some potential money or funds um coming in. How many of us true conservatives, limited government, libertarian leaning conservatives? We just talked about Mark Sanford. I mean, Mark wanted to drown government in a bathtub. Give Mark some credit. Mark didn't mislead you. Mark would tell you he wanted to drown government in a bathtub. He never really misrepresented he might have misrepresented where he was on the Appalachian Trail, but he didn't <laughs> hey, misrepresent but I mean he didn't misrepresent his government philosophy. Right. I mean he believed that government should be small enough to drown in a bathtub. So, so if you've got a libertarian-leaning, um, you know, governor or lieutenant governor or member of the Congress or, or state senator, what what do they believe the government's responsibilities are to an orphan kid? No fault of the of the, of the kid. Remember the, the, the five-year-old and three-year-old, but I mean, they're just living in the world. They're, they're along for the ride, so to speak. There'll be a day in their lives. They make, you know, personal decisions that affect their or influence their, you know, lot in life but but at that age they're completely at the mercy of what the parents and you know and then the system and the world around them that they have no influence over so as a libertarian leaning conservative what do you believe the government's role is in taking care of that five-year-old and three-year-old who are left you know i I don't want to say destitute but who's going to take care of them um what if the family can't take care what if the grandmother doesn't have the ability. What, what if the grandfather doesn't have the ability? What, what if the aunt does, is all she can do to take care of her two kids? And here we go with the safety net, right? And you know, we all agree, and most of us agree, that we've allowed the safety net to morph into a safety hammock. There, there's a big debate right now. But I don't know if you saw this or not on CNBC, but the the uh, one of the founders of Home Depot basically laid it on the line as politically incorrect as you ever imagine. A, a um, now he's a rich old guy. And if you want the truth, normally rich old guys will tell you the truth. But uh, Bernie Marcus said that the problem with America today is it loves socialism. It loves being lazy, stupid, and not wanting to work. I mean, I mean, it, I try to find the exact quote, but he basically and you could tell the CNBC were like, hey, oh, no, no, no. That's not the way founders of Home Depot talk. And then he basically says, well, I'm old and rich. I'm going to say, you know, if you invite an old rich guy on the on the air, I'm, I'm yeah, going to say, well, ask me
1: my opinion. Yeah, me give my opinion
0: you. But he said, hey, we've chosen socialism over capitalism. I mean, it's as easy as that. You know, the um, w- what do we say about riding in the wagon, pushing and pulling the wagon? I mean, Bernie Marcus basically says that Americans like riding in the wagon more than we like pushing or pulling the wagon, that we simply will not go to work. We, we simply choose to allow the government to take care of us, and there's no shame in that anymore. But I mean, there was a day we were a little embarrassed. You know, the, the, imagine the politically incorrect scenario of a, um, a classroom. I can remember. I'm not an old guy. I'm getting a little older, but I can remember first day in class. The teacher would ask students, who's on free lunch? And certain kids would raise their hand. I mean, I can see it like it was yesterday. That that is so politically incorrect. But nobody, kids, don't look at that in any way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I mean, the teacher would stand in front of the class and say, "How many of you are on free lunch?" And you know, a third of the class would raise their hands. How many are on reduced lunch? And, and a certain few kids would raise their hand. And you know, it, it's just it's amazing now that that we've um now once again i would imagine the parent of that kid would have rather not had that be the case because that shows they're trying to well you wonder if they're struggling or not some people live better you know like that than um than others i actually saw a homeless i'm rambling now but stick with me for a second i saw a homeless guy that i've seen in florence multiple times you know homeless don't have any money veteran the typical thing veteran uh, war hero all this good stuff but um i just need a helping hand i saw him at a certain business um one day on vacation with a phone as big as my briefcase <laughs> two chargers really? two chargers um mm-hmm. and i'm thinking to myself okay now he was borrowing the the, uh, the the receptacle in the in the business establishment but i mean i'm looking at my phone looking at his and i'm going like wow dude i mean you're on the street begging for money but you've got one of these iphone 47s you know, with a high definition screen, and you've got that with an iPhone four. Or, oh, okay. 6 or that's that's it's not a flip phone. Okay, <laughs> it's the first iteration of the non flip phone um, it? Apple. It works just fine, <laughs> as I tell my kids, it works just fine. When, when I pull my phone, out they're like, "Whoa, okay," and I'm like, "It works just fine." I like it because I understand it, and um, uh, and I've gone to Verizon and, and looked at some of these newer models, and I'm like, "No, I don't want any any part of that." Let's take a break. We'll be back. And just a few eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. You know, I could be. I actually went back and read some Jordan Peterson yesterday. You know, Jordan Peterson is a clinician. I mean, he's a clinical scientist, so to speak. Um, the University of Excuse me, the Ontario College of Psychiatry or um, psycho. Uh, what is it? University the the Ontario University of um, Psychiatrist. That, that is where he got a degree from. Okay. They are the basically, they're the um the gatekeepers for who gets to practice um, psychology or psychiatry in Canada. And he's concerned them with some things he said that are in agreement with um, the knuckle draggers, you know, the NASCAR fans, the Neanderthals that believe in limited government. It's kind of interesting that he doesn't care because he has a, uh, I mean, he's not a practicing Psychiatrist any longer. I mean, he's a he's kind of a rock star in the world of um, speaking and uh, political punditry. I mean, he would be an intellect, no doubt. I mean, there's no question he would be regarded as a highly educated, enlightened um, intellect. But but he his, was important enough for them to shut him down for a while. Did right? you see that? But I mean, did you see the article about the University of Ontario? No. No. And once again, I mean, obviously they don't call themselves the gatekeepers, but they kind of are. They can um they can actually ask to have your license revoked, and and you know they are that makes them the gatekeeper as far as I'm concerned right. on who gets to practice as a psychologist or a psychiatrist and who does not. But um but it'll be interesting because uh, they're arguing they basically want him to agree to go to some sort of um uh, forgiveness training class. And take back some of these things what is it sensitivity training (laughs) you know to be more sensitive of those who have a a liberal worldview because he's been kind of a blunt guy uh recently and lately i'll tell you peterson is one of these guys that we need on our team and i hate to say this but we've got teams i mean it's not we're all in this thing together i mean there's one group of people who are trying to drive the country in one direction there are another group of people i hope is motivated to try to drive it in in an equal and opposite direction. And I think Peterson's one of us. I mean, I think Elon Musk is one of us at his heart because I think Musk believes in fairness. And and I think the majority of, you know, I don't want to say, you know, will I take an advantage? Of course I will. Will, will, will I take an inside straight? Of course I will. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again and I'll stand by my comments. Um, I'm not that offended by the fix. As long as I'm in on it. I mean, I've got a big problem right. with the fix if I'm not in, uh, you know, that thing was fixed. I mean, as my father said, I've used him twice again today. Talked about fixed income. He said, "Ain't nothing wrong, with fixed income. If it's fixed, okay." Um, <laughs> so, so if the fix is on my side, you know, I've got no problem with the fix. And um, but but Peterson and Musk and you know Blake Masters, I they're 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 different sorts of. And I don't know that they're conservatives, but they they do do believe in the fundamentals of free speech. They do believe in the fundamentals of capitalism. I mean, we can debate. You know, we're free. We're Free speech stops, and we can debate the Second Amendment, First Amendment, some of these other um, sensibilities of society. But, but I do believe that those, those three people and, and a lot of others like that, we need them on board um, to add some of the intellectual underpinning to legitimize some of the debates that we uh, are allowed to have. But uh, speaking of debates, uh, it is 10 o'clock now, nearly 10. Almost. So in a couple of hours, I think Jared Halper nailed it. It'll be interesting to watch. I mean, if 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 McCarthy calls for the vote at 12 today, I mean, he won't call for the vote, but he will call for the vote. I mean, he's the, the candidate in the hopper, so to speak. Um, or does he ask to adjourn? If he asks to adjourn, there's some, they've made some They're still progress. they on it. They've made some progress. If he calls for the vote and the vote is as it was yesterday and the day before, uh, it's over i mean, going to, you know, find another candidate, maybe Scalise, maybe I said Fred Upton. I'll stick to that. Fred Upton. Don't forget that name. He's not even a member of Congress after the speaker is um, placed. Talk tomorrow.